Welcome to, uh, to the live podcast. My name is Chris, aka Mayo, the director of Big Esports and, and host of this podcast. Uh, we've changed our podcast now to be releasing weekly. Uh, so there's a lot of content coming out. The next podcast um, is yeah going to be next week. This one will be for those of you who are live, produced and, and set up about five days or so after we record. And, and we'll be releasing our podcast Friday and Monday most of the time. So the next podcast for those of you who are here is with Ross Adcock from Corsair. However, those listening online, it will have already been released. The last one we did was with uh, David Parker, aka Gods, uh, who is the co-founder um, and also head honcho, one of the head honchos there at um, Beyond the Summit TV. So for those who don't know, he's actually an Aussie. He's from Melbourne. He moved over to California quite a long time ago and they're a massive powerhouse over there. They run some really fantastic tournaments inside a house. It's a very homeless style tournaments as well as he's known for commentating internationally. One of the best things you can do for esports in Australia or abroad is support those companies that support you. What we do here in Australia at Big Esports is we've partnered with PLE Computers. They're a PC retailer that sell all of the best gaming gear. They also make a whole bunch of custom PCs, whether it's a full water-cooled massive rig to play Crisis at full graphics, or whether it's something nice and simple to take to LAN parties, play CSGO, Rocket League, Fortnite or otherwise. They've got these different solutions for you. What we're doing with PLE is instead of just a general advertising partnership, we're trying to educate audiences and we're trying to grow the local scene. So PLE are working with us on our mentor courses where we're providing discount on both shipping and parts to the people that join in. We've partnered with them on our high school boot camp where we're educating high school students on mental health, physical health and wellness, along with technology integration, understanding how they can take apart and build their own computers and save money on pre-builds. We're also working with them on this podcast, which we're hoping is educating all of you, not only on just talking to cool people and understanding how they think and feel but what their struggles are, how their businesses work and how the back end works. So if you're looking to support a company that supports the scene, make sure you check out PLE at ple.com.au and grab yourself a bargain. Welcome uh, to the live podcast. My name is Chris, aka Mayo, the director of Big Esports and, and host of this podcast. Uh, we've changed our podcast now to be releasing weekly. Uh, so there's a lot of content coming out. The next podcast um, is yeah going to be next week. This one will be for those of you who are live, produced and, and set up about five days or so after we record and, and we'll be releasing our podcast Friday and Monday most of the time. So the next podcast for those of you who are here is with Ross Adcock from Corsair. However, those listening online, it will have already been released. The last one we did was with uh, David Parker, aka Gods, uh, who is the co-founder um, and also head honcho, one of the head honchos there at um, Beyond the Summit TV. So for those of you who don't know, he's actually an Aussie. He's from Melbourne. He moved over to California quite a long time ago, and they're a massive powerhouse over there. They run some really fantastic tournaments inside a house, so very homely-style tournaments, as well as he's known for commentating internationally. But he was down in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago for a $50,000 comp. So for this one, uh, this podcast here live at Hoyt's at Studio 12, which I believe used to be Kerry Packer's private cinema uh, fantastic nice intimate location as we like to call it is brought to you by PLE computers as always as well as Hoyts for this one so introducing our first guest sitting here next to me we've got Scott Russell the GM of Hoyts esports he's responsible for looking after all the esports activations for Hoyts cinemas uh, with there's a lot that I'm sure we'll talk about that's coming in 2019 for Hoyts but as of 2018 uh, working with Gfinity primarily with the permanent esports arena base out of here so a full production 
arena with with uh, a bunch of seats there for people to watch Gfinity that happens in two seasons as a franchise league over the year. So, Scott, mate, do you want to uh, just tell us a little bit about your day-to-day, what you're doing at Hoyts, and then also your progression from maybe, you know, when you started working professional career up to how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with, um, I guess, how I got to this point. So, I, um, I started in media and advertising. I worked for a company called Icon Communications. Um, at the time I came into the company, they, they were one of the leading media agencies in the country. To be honest, I got lucky. I came into a, a company that was winning a lot of pitches and had some really great clients. I had Combank, Coke, Vodafone, just to name a few. Um, and I actually worked on Namco Bandai when, um, when I started at Icon. So that was kind of my first exposure into gaming in, in media and, and advertising. Um, and then I worked at Icon for about three and a half, four years and I moved over to the media owner side. So I started working for Val Morgan, um, which is an advertising company owned by Hoyts. Um, they specialize in outdoor and cinema advertising. Spent about three and a half years working at, at both of those companies. So a year and a half in outdoor and the rest of the time in cinema. And in that time, I got to work with Damien Keogh, my CEO, and he's been a mentor to me for pretty much most of my professional career. And he moved over to head up the Hoyts um, group and I moved across to the, the Hoyts department and worked in the corporate team. So I was working in film premieres, brand partnerships, ticket promotions. And in that time, we started working with Riot uh, Games, doing League of Legends viewing parties and they far surpassed our expectations, to be honest, when we, when we initially started launching them. And we saw the opportunity of diversifying content into esports and we saw the opportunity with engaging with the esports demographic through holding viewing parties in our cinemas. And um, I personally started to get very vocal within the business about we should be moving more into esports and we should definitely be doing more in this space and uh, had the opportunity to get involved in the Gfinity pitch when they were first looking at building an arena in the market and setting up the league. Um, and, and the rest is kind of history from there. And we um, we obviously went into a JV with Gfinity and we've built the arena and you know, fast forward 12 months to the end of 2018 now and we've had two seasons in there and um, it's it's obviously had its success and it's had its challenges and it's been a huge learning curve and, and that I think is just the nature of esports when you're a non-endemic coming into the space. I mean, I have always been passionate about gaming. I've primarily been a console gamer um, my whole life and kind of lost sight of that a little bit when I you know, was at uni and then working professionally. It's hard to find time. Now I have an amazing excuse to play games every night. <laughs> so Market research. Yeah, well, it's, it's part of my routine now. I kind of... Um, I, I treat esports almost like an MBA where I, I do my research in the morning and kind of try and stay up with um, the latest breaking news stories with, with esports. And then I get home and uh, play Red Dead or God of War or Spider-Man or, or whatever it may be. But yeah, it's it's been an amazing journey. And um, I, I feel very fortunate to be working for a company that I'm very passionate about that I've been involved with for a number of years. I've been at Hoyts for over seven and a half years now. And to be able to to work um, with the company kind of paving the way for esports within the business is, is really exciting. And um, I think we've only just scratched the surface with, you know, the arena with Gfinity and, and kind of launching viewing parties. And um, yeah, next year is definitely shaping up to be a really big year for the business in terms of our involvement with esports. So our other guest here uh, sitting further to my right is Matt Jones, the CEO of Ovo Mobile. 
which is a sim-only mobile provider, uh, currently known for playing a bit of PUBG in his spare time, which can be fortunate or unfortunate depending on how long it takes to um, get a QPOP for a server these days. Um, and also with working with OVO, primarily working with the Australian Esports League. Um, and for those of you who don't know, OVO Mobile also has OVO Play, which is attached to that. So uh, Matt has a little bit of a unique position, I guess, where he's not just trying to sell um, normal brand sponsorship. It's also content. So maybe do you want to give us a bit of a rundown as to as to what that means and also who you are and, and uh, what your progression is from where you used to work to being a founder of a mobile startup? Mm, sure. Um, thanks, Chris. Well, I was born in 1970. No. <laughs> I... Um, my first uh, gaming experience was t like most young kids on console, but um, I think when I discovered PC gaming and became sort of crazy about um, the quality of my graphics card and the, the best peripherals and playing, you know, with that uh, typical twitch, the fastest you could um, respond, I, I kind of, I, I, unlike you, Scott, I, I became a PC-only gamer, um, always FPS, and you're right, I have been completely lost in PUBG now for about... Um, I keep buying all the latest games, like I buy everything that comes out, but I can keep going back to PUBG for some strange reason. We've got about um, three guys in our company that all play in a crew most nights, um, maybe a few too many nights, if you ask their wives or girlfriends, but um, it definitely keeps us in touch with um, the gaming side of, of the commercial side of esports being a participant most of our lives but um, we started OVO um, with a very clear purpose to create uh, the next generation of what a telco needs to be because we saw a future where the mobile device in particular was a primary screen and um, and as eyeballs and viewership moved away from traditional broadcast to this you know primary experience on the mobile device um, we thought there was a huge opportunity to create a telco, a mobile telco that was uh, focused way beyond just providing the network access and it was really about um, identifying content that was appealing to fans and bringing that to the fans as part of the service. In fact, the holy grail is stop charging people 30 40 50 or or $100 for network access and start charging people for value the stuff that they really use their devices for like the access to games virtual gaming um, high definition broadcasts content delivered how we want it where we want it when we want it um, so effectively what we've we've developed is a kind of two parts of the business one is ultimately providing network access in the form of put it by a sim and put it in your phone and, and a good quality reliable network and the second is we've built a OTT app if you're familiar with that term and effectively, um, much like uh, uh, some of the premium global OTT apps like Netflix and, and Amazon and stuff, we've done one which is all about um, grassroots and emerging sports. And we did um, partnerships with a whole range of sporting bodies in Australia that um, just frankly wouldn't be mainstream. They wouldn't be TV broadcastable. And sometimes the audience is huge, but the format of the sport is impossible to broadcast. So... What our biggest example of that is drag racing, which is a 10-hour-a-day, two- to three-day event. And you name a traditional broadcaster that's willing to put a, a sport like that on one channel and uh, cross their fingers, the advertisers will come. So that was hugely successful and, and 
right through to grassroots sports like water polo, gymnastics, um, rugby. Um, and then more recently, uh, I always had my eye on 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 getting into the esports space. And um, like you, Scott, I met with the Gfinity folks at the beginning. And, and you know, honestly, just because I'm a gamer and I consider myself an expert in a couple of titles, um, the, the reality is esports is the complete opposite in considering how you get involved. It's much more about thinking about the commercial opportunity and how you participate or what value you add in that in that um, ecosystem, and and I was no expert to be honest. I I didn't, you know, other than having gone along to one or two events, I didn't really know what we were going to do. Um, but what we uh, and you know we can share the story with some of the other questions. But what we ultimately decided was to pick up the same theory and validation we'd had with some of these grassroots sports and apply it to our approach into esports. So along the way, I met. Um, uh, Darren, who founded the uh, AEL, the Australian Esports League, and he pitched this concept of a university cup. And um, uh, and I really love the idea in the same way we've invested in other grassroots sports as being really foundational at a time when um, people are trying to work out how they could turn their passion and interest into a into a job or, a, or an opportunity to be successful athlete in, in esports. And so... Last year, we broadcast nearly 250 hours of um, competition between 70-odd teams across 30-odd universities, um, about 680 players. Um, and um, like you, it was our first year. Lots of technical issues and bits of fun and, you know, trying to get people to turn up on time <laughs> um, for what is supposed to be a proper scheduled broadcast. But um, by and large, it was a huge success and... Um, and we're committed to it. We're committed to it for the next five years because uh, it's a huge opportunity for us, particularly as a relatively unknown brand. You know, in the mobile space, everyone knows Vodafone, Telstra and Optus. This is one of those huge ways for us to connect to the community, deliver something of value to them in the form of the broadcast and support um, people who are getting into esports and professionalising their interests really early. So we're only at the beginning of it and still learning. We're happy to share a lot of those learnings tonight. It's interesting from Ovo, I get some, I get some Virgin Group uh, kind of vibes from it uh, after, you know, reading some of Richard Branson's books and, and saying the way that he founded companies would take things that he thinks suck and, and make them better. Do you think that you're filling that gap that now they've scaled up to be such a big company they can't pivot as well as you guys can? So you can, you can come in and kind of follow their similar MO nowadays? Yeah, I mean, to be, to be brutally honest, they've, they've gone, the two big carriers, um, the third is more of a sponsor than a than a broadcaster, but the two big carriers have done the very obvious thing, you know, go after the tier one sport, put it on a mobile. Tragically, their approach um, has always been, in, because their whole DNA is about subscription, their whole approach then is to charge for it, which destroys audience and participation and eyeballs. They don't think like media companies. Um, and so I, I think even in their approach towards um, broadcast and and not to say the product isn't great quality but the thinking that goes behind it we absolutely wanted to do the opposite so all of our broadcast is free free to air you don't have to have an ovo sim card um, because you're not creating value in the sport or in the ecosystem if you're putting it behind paywalls or hiding it um, behind clunky processes that you know some people frankly might not be able to get a sim card 
in, in the area they live and that's terrible to do that to a sport, to put it behind a paywall. I'm not a massive fan of pay TV either, by the way. Um, but uh, so, yeah, we are, we are that and we're also trying to make sure um, that we really connect with the uh, gamer community. So eSports is a way of communicating your involvement but you've ultimately got to get to the participant or, you know, uh, until such time as the audience is not a participant. But right now there's a very strong correlation. And so that for us is about, and going back to the eSports University League, it's about connecting with young people who are genuinely participating in gaming uh, and then leveraging the broadcast as a way of showing our genuine interest in investing in the community and the um, and the product that, that will ultimately generate value for all of them. Yeah, so I guess today's podcast, uh, trying to people who are listening, there's kind of two main angles here. One of the angles is if you're a non-endemic yourself looking to enter the space, we're going to be talking about, um, you know, why get involved with esports, some of the costing involved around it, uh, what the market is, how we can learn from from others who've jumped in early, like the two guests here today and failed. And the other one is I want to challenge a lot of what people who are endemics and and people who are running esports startups think that non endemics want and think that and uh, think that they know exactly what to pitch and to kind of push back on that and ask some non-endemics themselves, you know, what's the information that you actually care about? Are there some preconceived ideas that esports people take for granted that don't matter to you? Are there holes in the market that you wish were filled? So either of the two of you, I guess, can take this first question, but this one's a very broad one, and then I'm going to start digging in a little bit deeper from that. But at the start is... Why esports, and is it the eighteen to twenty-four year old uh, male-dominated audience that you're looking for, or is there other messaging or other people that you're looking to reach? Um, it is, it is, it is in a sense that when you go to a major event, whether it's IEM or um, I can't say I've been to PAX, I missed that one unfortunately. But when you go to a major event, it's very heavily skewed towards that younger male demo. Um, in fact, that's so obvious, it doesn't need to be in a pitch deck. But, um, uh, and and I think though that what it's not is about the, the um, what, whatever the event is in terms of the, the sporting broadcast that's happening, it's actually about the community because what I really noticed, particularly as I was doing my research, getting into it and going to a few events was um, to state the obvious, esports is much more about an entertainment property than it is about a game. So unlike going to the AFL or the NRL game where it's very well understood, you walk in, pay your ticket, sit down, it starts and it finishes, with a bit of halftime entertainment maybe, this is about uh, having an f- experience across the spectrum of gaming, gaming um, culture, um, meeting people and networking, um, and sure, at the middle of that, is this spectacle of, you know, two amazing teams battling it out. But um, the demo is is definitely skewed, but you also, I think, you're starting to see a lot of um, other demos that um, aren't obvious. Guys like me who are 40-something who play games still and would go along to this event more for... Uh, the entertainment value and I also think you're starting to see in fact I noticed it a lot when I went to IEM you're seeing a lot more women come out uh, to those sorts of events because unlike online it's not a dangerous environment or it's not a you know um, 
what's the word? It's not a um, environment where you know you're as unique. You're you're quite a, you know it's in a public place and you can kind of people um, in a bit more of a um, normal um, outdoor environment. So I think um, while it skews male, you're starting to see a lot more of the. Uh, broader audience that are playing, participating, uh, or love gaming, coming into those environments, and, and you know that that's a great thing about those events. Yeah, one of my favourite explanations for esports was it's the combination of sport and entertainment, and that kind of ticked for me as to why it's so special. Even just looking at influences within esports and within gaming is in general, you don't generally see that. You don't see a, a fitness influencer being, you know, main stage at the AFL grand final. The same way that I am, there's massive Intel influencer um, troop of people going around like, like uh, Jared Krenzel or Pig, who's a famous StarCraft 2 commentator. And IEM has nothing to do with StarCraft 2, but people are coming just to see him and his hosting experiences and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so how about you, Scott? Is it the general demographic that you're looking for? Or is it a little bit deeper than just those numbers? No, I think it definitely goes deeper. And I mean, when you look at, I guess, the film industry, it's such a broad industry in terms of demographic. There's content that appeals to pretty much every gamut of, um, of people. And I think the, the question why esports, I mean, there's such a buzz with esports right now that I think every major category in industry at some point has to look at that and say, how can we potentially get involved in this? Or, um, you know, what's the opportunity here? But I think Matt kind of hit the nail on the head that it, it shouldn't be why should we get involved into esports? It should be, as a non-endemic, you should be asking what value can we add to this? And from our standpoint, being um, you know an entertainment provider, and we've specialized in entertainment for over 100 years now, it's there's this entertainment vertical that's now becoming hugely popular. How can we uh, get involved in this? But more importantly, how can we add value to the community? And I think that was the biggest question that, that I asked myself when we started working I guess more prevalently within the space and and for me it was pretty simple it's you know we've got a national network of venues that are auditoriums with a large screen and are made for um, consuming content in a way that delivers it in the best possible quality and you can adapt esports into that in a really strong way but going beyond that you can really help build communities and social networks beyond a screen in a physical presence within these venues that I think adds a lot of value to the developers, it adds a lot of value to the community, um, and it creates a totally unique new experience for, for gaming, which I think is pretty special. In terms of the demo, what, what's been really interesting for me, and I've been to pretty much every Elite Series tournament um, this year, it really depends on the game. I mean, you look at Counter-Strike and, yeah, you know, males 18 to 24 is pretty much bang on for that title. Rocket League, uh, it definitely skews younger. And I think the big standout for me is that you're seeing families come in. I think that's a really great thing, like mums and dads with their kids. Um, and for me, that was a standout. It was, wow, there's, there's kind of this, you know, outside of the social context of gamers getting together with their buds and coming and having a great time watching this eSport content. But it's like bringing families together. And there's so much negativity lately around, you know, kids and gaming that to see a title bring a family together is a hugely positive thing. And to, to have that experience... Um, in a venue like Hoyt's, which is you know a well-known, trusted entertainment brand, again, there's the value equation there where we can potentially do more and be more involved. So that's really exciting from from my standpoint. Yeah. So keeping in line with with kind of maybe the preconceived ideas and and what the endemics are coming to you as whether that be you know PR companies, esports teams, whatever. What uh, part of esports pitch decks have you enjoyed learning and seeing, and what parts do you think don't need to be in there? 
Um, I definitely don't need um, global numbers. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and there's a running there's a running joke between <laughs> most people in Australian esports that have been around for a bit that you know the first five slides of every pitch deck in Australia is New Zoo global esports yeah, numbers, yeah. which are in no way applicable to the Australian no, audience. No, exactly. So so everything starts you know with a gigantic map of the world and um, and and. I think in, intuitively everyone knows um, that it's going, it's go, it's exploding, it's going to go off. You don't need as much of that. Um, the, the thing that's the couple of things that I think are so first, just to state the obvious: the more localized um, data that's available in any pitch, the more powerful it is. Um, and I know it's difficult because particularly publishers and distributors. Um, aren't particularly um, open with the data, but um, the more that can be rich, you know, that rich context can be provided. It's it's super super important to a broadcaster because we're not just interested in eyeballs; we're interested in um, uh, what uh, demographic data there is about those people, what their shopping habits are. So, if you've got a pitch deck from a mainstream sport, you know, typically it would have it would be forty pages long, and it could tell you what they do on the weekends, where they live, what uh, food they eat, you know. And so that all has to, as a broadcaster, flow through to your advertising strategy. So what brands do you want to bring in on your platform to advertise to that audience? Um, so that's missing in the value chain, and that's just because the industry is nascent in, in many respects. But, you know, thinking about some of the things that I think um, we would love to see more, and this is not hard, is case studies. So I think for um, non-endemics who are trying to imagine whether it's either a branding opportunity or even for us as a as a broadcaster of sorts, you're looking for lots of really rich examples of how other brands, even if possible in their industry segment, have leveraged esports because that gives a lot of validation. So when you just get numbers, global numbers, and um, you need to be involved and 18 to 24-year-olds and then you have to turn to a marketing team that in many cases doesn't even know what esports is and say, so how are we going to um, speak to that audience? You, you actually find that there's no action that the marketing team can work out because they don't, they don't really have any context on the, on the audience they're targeting. And look, the final thing I think um, that is a huge opportunity when people are pitching is... Um, to spend a bit of time, and it's a bit of the old 101 of sales, spend a bit of time understanding the brand and the brand's objectives, the brand's challenges. They might say, you know, I can't sell these chocolate bars to anyone under 30, and that might help them understand, and why is that? They know that why they're trying to reach the demographic or the audience, and then going back in and being able to replay the pitch deck in the context of the brand's objectives completely changes the value of the pitch rather than coming in with a white label pitch about the the industry and the whatever it is the team the league the um the event um so yeah look it, it, when it's a branding thing i think it's a bit different you know brands will assess it based on reach audience frequency all those sorts of things but when it's when you're getting more involved like we are as a as a broadcaster we're very interested in the deeper data so that we can look at the other side of the broadcast which is the commercialization of of uh, any opportunity 
Yeah, and touching on understanding the brand, that's something that definitely goes for the endemics too, for, for those that are that are looking to pitch a company like Corsair. And this is what Russ and I talked about in the, in the last podcast recording and just understanding the company. And also, you know, what I'd like to add to, to the good points that you raised is try to find some comparisons between other things. And what I do when talking to most um, people about esports is start off with gaming and influencers because that's something they already understand, you know, all non-endemics in some way or another understand influences and they're likely already working with them in some case or point. So I like to find a soft, some at some times a company wants a soft entry into esports and you can start off with, hey, look, here's a gaming influencer. It's much easier to understand the CPM and it's cheaper than advertising on a billboard or something like that. And then you can kind of ease them, ease them into that area. How about you, Scott? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't really had too many companies pitch to me. To be honest, I'm the one that's really been doing the pitching and we've spent the last year kind of formulating our strategy with esports and how we can commercialize it. Um, to your point, Matt, where we're a similar broadcast channel, obviously not digital, we're more cinema based and um, we um, we now work closely with fandom, um, which is a great fit for the business and, and that's a way that we're looking to market uh, our esport viewing parties um, next year. But um, what we initially tried to do was create a safe way for brands to get involved with esports through um, cinema advertising basically and we've commercialized the esports property in the same way that we have with Lux. So we've um, created media packages that are of a premium nature, so smaller share of voice. Um, they'll be exclusively screened against our esport viewing parties and we'll have one naming rights partner that will go across all our esports touch points for next year. So. The intention was to leverage the, I guess, power of the Hoyts brand um, and also the the media power of Val Morgan and fandom to be able to provide a really safe way for brands to come into the space and, I guess, engage with that demographic that we're creating through our property, knowing that it's it's with Hoyts. Um, and we're being realistic here as well. I mean, next year is E1 for us. So in terms of, you know, reach and frequency, it, it's... It's something that we'll continue to develop and build on, but we do have the safety net of Val Morgan that can put the advertising against films that over-index against a gaming demo um, and also build in fandom packages that talk to gaming communities directly. So um, we're, we're very confident with what we've created now and we actually had our media packages audited by a company called Gemba. So we had a, an independent agency come through and evaluate the assets that we have access to um, so that we know that we're going out with something secure and, and safe. Yeah, so uh, I guess touching on something that you brought up before as well, Matt, uh, understanding your audience and, and knowing it. And obviously, Scott, you're doing the pitching, so you have to know the audience. What does what does the process look like for both of you from knowing virtually nothing about esports, just a little bit about gaming, to being you know, somewhat of a subject matter expert, at least within your company, or enough that you're willing to invest or pitch other companies confidently? Yeah, well, I, as I said, you know, as a gamer, but that doesn't really qualify you, to be honest. Um, and um, uh, for for about a year and a half, maybe maybe two years, I went to events. I um, I went, you know, to big events and to small events. Started checking out the um, esports gaming bars that were kind of popping up, and there's some great ones up Gold Coast and Melbourne and um, and here in Sydney. Um, started speaking with teams, leagues, um, in that context, they were more coming in to pitch to me, but, um, you know, you're educating yourself effectively so that you can understand the dimensions of the whole ecosystem. And then, um, 
ultimately getting a couple of experts in. Don't mind saying we got Chris in for a couple of days to not only give us a lay down on the whole industry and the and the market and the and the pricing and all those sorts of things for for uh, everything from as you say influencers right through to teams and leagues and and brand investments, um, but also helping us map how strategy relative to that. So there's a good chunk of time that. I got pretty much all of the management team of OVO into the room with Chris to kind of talk about um, what we've done successfully, where we haven't been success, successful with some of our other properties and understand does it apply, are there different rules, et cetera. So then that ultimately led to that decision, which was, you know what, we're not, we're not um, if we're a broadcaster, we can't be in a team. That just doesn't make sense. And if we're we're going to be true to being a broadcaster. If this is not a brand sponsorship, but this is a broadcast deal, then we need kind of in a, in a more modest way than um, Hoyts, obviously, we need to find a league that we can broadcast and we need it needs to be affordable but still reach a reasonable audience. And so, you know, we then started doing all the research on universities and the population and the gamers, gaming community and universities and I visited a bunch of the university clubs some amazing clubs, you know, you wouldn't believe the number of members sitting in, I don't know, you guys probably know, um, you know, thousands and thousands of members in one university. And you kind of go, wow, you know, that that's a massive opportunity. It's below the, the major media players or broadcasters or distributors and it's underserved. So that that's ultimately how we came to our decision on the university uh, level uh, broadcast deal. And... Um, and, you know, the next step for us will be continue to work on that. That's like foundational. It's then what do we do to kind of move into the bit, the, the bigger end of uh, esports and work out um, effectively how we play there, which might be just for argument's sake, letting the broader audience in those bigger events know that we're at this foundation. It might not necessarily be a broadcaster at the next level. Um, but either way, you know, it was a, lo it was a long time really in, r in real terms. You don't often spend nearly nearly two years trying to work out what you should do in esports and a bit of it was you know good luck and good timing and all that sort of stuff yeah i mean it, it's been the same for me it's been a huge learning curve and um as i mentioned earlier i've always been passionate about gaming but i mean coming into a, a full-time role with esports is a huge undertaking and um it, it's something that you kind of are constantly evolving um i don't think you'll ever be an expert with esports in general because it's just so broad and there's just so much to learn and continually get across. It's more just, I think, understanding, again, the value equation and where you kind of fit in the ecosystem and really focusing on that. And for us, it's, well, from my standpoint, you know, we're a venue. Um, that's that's what we've done and that's what we've built our business off and that's what we do really well. And it's, it's knowing, okay, what parts of esports can we tap into and what do we need to focus on? And a lot of mine has been behavioral, behavioral, so being able to, to go to these um, Gfinity Elite Series tournaments and also go to, you know, the larger scale tournaments that we're seeing throughout the country and just looking at how the fans are engaging with the content within that space and understanding, right, what, what are the certain aspects of that that we can apply to cinema and how can we leverage this to make the cinema experience unique and different and, and incredible. Um, so I guess it's understanding, yeah, where, where you fit in and what you need to get a deeper understanding of and really building on that and continue to build on that. So, um that's yeah, really been my journey with continuing to learn about esports. 
Yeah, so while esports is a fairly new thing, it's a, it's a new market um, and there's new some new ways that it operates, it's still ultimately sport and it's still ultimately business. So are there any major similarities between esports and any other market segments that either of you play in? And is there any learnings that we can take from them? Definitely entertainment. I mean, film for sure. There's There's huge synergies. I mean, you look at film distributors and the relationships that they have with exhibitors and um, I think the similarities between film distributors and game developers uh, are massive. Um, and you look at the fan bases as well. I mean, you have these these diehard fans of franchises with film. You know, your Star Wars fans, your Marvel fans, um, and it's the exact same sort of thing when you when it comes to titles and developers. You have this fan base that are incredibly passionate about a product, um, and it's part of their life. It's a big part of their life, and I think that's what makes it so special. Um, and being able to I guess tap into that in a way where you can add value to that passion point is um, a really great and positive thing. And I think that that's why as a venue provider and an entertainment brand, Hoyts fits into the equation really well because we know um, just how much this content and this product means to the fans. Uh, and we can potentially provide an experience with that product that's um, on another level. So targeting you directly for that question, Matt, and, and changing it a little bit. I remember some of your talking during the Ministry of Sport No, no BS seminar and, and also during the Ashton Media Conference last year, you talked about the importance of OVO working with drag racing and bringing a lot of that broadcast and that sport from uh, kind of, for lack of a better term, from zero to hero or from very small to something tangible. So are there some things that esports can learn from drag racing? Huge things. I mean, um, uh, and it's we've done a little PR piece about this. This is all public information but when we started broadcasting drag racing um i think the you know they had about you know 100,000 audience annually watching the content we've now built it to 2 million their biggest fear with basically broadcasting their events was that ticket sales would suffer ticket revenues doubled um sponsorship revenues tripled so you know as state the obvious but you know you broadcast it an audience that's passionate about it that you know can't afford to get the whole family from Perth to, to the Sydney event or from Brisbane to the um, uh, Perth event uh, you suddenly create a national product and a national community I think the you know so so the, the broadcasting something around to a community that's underserved makes perfect sense and it creates a whole lot of commercial value for everyone in that ecosystem. Um, the the other thing I think, you know, coming back to your, the question, uh, you're just popping off 400 Thunder for a second, the drag racing, but broadly, what's where, what are the similarities between traditional sport? Um, one, of the, one of the things I think is quite interesting about gaming and esports and, and community sports um, is that they are... So, so if you're a fan of the AFL, you don't only hang out with AFL people everywhere you go on the weekend, and you know that it, that's and that's a um, a competition that you follow, and you most likely follow a team and a set of players. But with community sports like water polo, you play in a club, you probably played through all through your primary school and your high school, you play in the national competition if you reach that level. Uh, and you probably do it at the expense of a whole range of other options, um, because you're, you know, you it's sort of that is your community, that's your sporting community, and esports and particularly gaming has a lot of similarities to that. Because when you start gaming, you effectively start 
tapping into or connecting to a community, like a bunch of mates, and then it might broaden out to land parties, etc. And so I think the community aspect of of grassroots sports and the community aspect of gaming generally has a lot of similarities compared to uh, highly commercialised um, uh, mainstream sport. And that's a huge opportunity because if brands want to reach those types of audiences, um, the power of community and you just look at the social media exposure of key influencers or gamers or... or uh, anyone involved in esports is phenomenal, even you know overtaking in some of the biggest traditional sports heroes now. Um, so that's a similarity between not just traditional sport but community-based sports and and gaming and esports that I think is misunderstood by a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the word that I derive from that is identity, because generally you don't. Going back to to what you were saying, generally someone doesn't call themselves a footballer if they're keen on AFL. They don't identify as that. But if you go to anyone's Twitter bio, a lot of the time they'll, they'll identify themselves as a gamer or they'll introduce themselves as a gamer. And yeah, I see some similarities there. Definitely between, like you were saying, with the sports and the community sports, kind of controls not controls, but it's a massive part of your life. You see that with people who are into things like jujitsu and and things like water polo and such. You know, a lot of their friends are in that same scene. They hang out with the same people, and that yeah, that kind of stuff. And that's definitely an interesting analogy. And another another interesting uh, bit of information, unfortunately, I, I can't verify the source for this, um, but I, I found it something interesting I'm to look into a bit more, is that I was talking to some people about the similarities between small team sports and esports, and there seems to be a strong correlation, according to them, between things like basketball and golf and esports. And a lot of that is the fact of, like what you were saying, is that you have a core group of mates that like to play together. So if you play a larger scale game like foot, like soccer, as in football or AFL, it's a bit harder to get a team identity because there's 10 people on the field at any one time, 16 people. If one person comes or goes, it doesn't matter as much. However, in esports, if you're playing a game like Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which I used to play a few years ago as a semi-pro, I had a very specific thing I had to do within my team and we were a very tight-knit team. You couldn't just sub someone out for something else because I knew that, you know, for example, on the terror side, uh, our default setting would be on Dust 2, I would go from uppers to lowers and flash this area and pre-fire these three areas and, and then roll out, you know, the strategy from there, etc. So it's an interesting thing saying that, you know, a lot of gamers, while there is a type cast that, you know, Lonely Basement Nerds, which has been proved to not be true, still a lot of gamers are a bit reclusive and they don't mind being alone by themselves the same way that basketball is 5v5 and someone doesn't mind shooting some hoops by themselves but if you're really into AFL it's very unlikely you're going to kick goals by yourself because as I learned when I was a kid when you kick a goal you got to run a long way to get the ball and pick it back up and it really sucks sometimes so while you might be able to kick or handball against a wall you know it's not quite as easy as as with esports so there's some similar more boring some by yourself <laughs> yeah yeah definitely much more boring by yourself I think the reality is just you know adding a little point to that is um so those communities are getting together way more regularly because it's convenient um and and they're hanging out together, right? Whether it's on... And like on, you said, every single night, right? Yeah, Playing yeah. PUBG and Discord yeah, together. even if it's an hour or two, it's just hanging out. Um, and then they're all going, hey, you know, PAX is coming up or IEM's coming up. You go, yeah, let, let's all go, right? Um, and I think, so little uh, tidbit, I guess, is for brands or, or anyone looking at um, coming into esports, being at um, PAX or IEM and not being connected to the community beforehand, we we always end up talking about genuinity. And or, but it's disingenuous if you haven't got a reason to add value at the community level 
then you're a much more appropriate brand to turn up. In fact, we've learned this lesson. You know, probably, probably this might be a question you've got coming, but you can't just be in the digital space. You've got to create this physical um, side to gaming and esports. Um, and if you're a peripherals manufacturer, you can't just sell your m m mice and keyboard and then not actually be involved digitally. Um, and so for us, the big lesson out of the first year was next year we've got to be at a lot more events because we've got to create the community involvement, but then we've got to be a brand that's present at the places where those communities go and, and um, come together, you know, in real life, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, so a question more so for Scott. A lot of the non-endemics that I talk to, especially sports and, and venues, you know, they, they understand the fact that they need to add value into esports, but they have a hard time identifying exactly how how that company should add value and what lessons they can take into esports to add value. So how did how did you as as the head of Hoyt's esports decide that these things you're undertaking, Gfinity viewing parties, et cetera, are the ways that Hoyt's should add value? I guess we, we looked at um, where there was a bit of a gap with the existing market. And I mean, we were seeing these events happen with, you know, your MEO and your IEM and, and they're fantastic events and they're kind of few and far between. And from our standpoint, we had an opportunity to create, I guess, hyper-local um, models of those events on a much more regular basis. And for us, it was, there's this kind of explosion of, um, access to content and an ability for us to be able to house that content within our venues and if we could do that on a regular basis then we potentially provide an opportunity for fans to engage with their favorite content on a much more regular basis and again we've applied a lot of the principles that we have with film to esports and our whole um, I guess uh, attitude towards esports is we're not trying to be something we're not within this space we know how we fit into the picture and again we're an entertainment provider and we're an entertainment venue and if we can create an experience with esports within an existing infrastructure of cinemas that the fans identify with and appreciate then that for us is is real really how we add value yeah, so obviously by the both of you being here and, and already being involved in esports for, for 12 months or thereabouts, you, you're obviously, you know, what I would class as early adopters. So what's the balance in investing between direct ROI you can gain from esports right now and potential for growth? Because obviously your your brands and your companies, you're not investors yourselves, so you're not necessarily looking to invest to grow a company to make an exit. You're still advertising in a sense and it's still coming out of those budgets. So how do you balance those two? Um, quite honestly, it was for us about affordability. You know, where could we enter? For, for, so we could have started <clears throat> with influences and discovery, which, you know, for a lot of brands that are looking to reach audience, that's absolutely perfectly fine. But we had to do a broadcast deal. Um, and so we had to decide what level we wanted to broadcast. Did we want to become a, a streaming platform for gamers to do um to do their streams or did we want to go and acquire a, uh, the broadcast rights for a league uh, and then it was about affordability um and then ultimately a, whatever the affordability let's say you write you write write in your in your plan that you're going to spend half a million on esports this year um how do you not spend it all on the rights and then have no way to activate it no way to turn it into um something material um, in other channels and in other engagements. So, you know, typically when you do a rights deal, you need to have somewhere between two and three times the rights for marketing and for activation. And so th that then led us to, okay, what level or what tier in esports can we enter? 
that's still meaningful. I mean, you know, and I'm still sort of, to be perfectly honest, still also sitting here saying I want to do a high school league as well um, because that would provide everything from from the youngest demo up to um, what now is is commercially, you know, um, getting really serious, right, after, they, after you get into the professional leagues and broadcast rights. Um, so, yeah, that, that was really the journey was to try and find the right fit for us where we could afford to do it well, not, not do it poorly or do a single event. We wanted to create a whole year's worth of value for the audience and the fans and the participants rather than um, just be event by event or sponsorship by sponsorship. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting from a Hoyt's perspective because I guess it just depends on what your overall objectives are. For us, it's very much a long-term play. So when you, I guess, look at the investment versus ROI, um, it's a it's a challenging balance for us because in order to to stream esports content, it means that we have to take a mainstream session off sale. So um, we have the added pressure of how how do we create an experience that's so good that people prefer to pay for a ticket and leave their house and come into our venue to experience that. And that's the big challenge on our side. And to be honest, that's really exciting from my standpoint because it means that we kind of get to pave a new frontier in terms of a cinema experience. And that's what we're working on at the moment. But our objective with esports is very much long-term. Um, we see this as an opportunity to diverse our entertainment portfolio into an entire new vertical. And that's something that isn't going to happen overnight. It's something that's going to take... Um, a lot of work, a lot of fine-tuning, um, a lot of research and understanding. And we have effectively entered year one next year. So this has really been year zero for us. And we've already got a number of key learnings that we've applied from hosting our own tournaments, from hosting numerous uh, viewing parties. Um, and it's, it's a balance, really. It's, it's understanding, uh, again, the value that you add to the industry and, and how that's going to, I guess, come back in the long run. And I think that if, um, if as a brand, as a non-endemic, you can come into the space and truly add value and truly engage with the fans in a way that, that hasn't really been done before and um, kind of paves the way for, I guess, new opportunities and, and uh, new experiences, then that's really what's, what's going to um, be the difference in terms of staying around for a short time or staying around for a long time. So our vision is very much forward thinking and it's all come at a really fortuitous time for our business because our brand ethos um, over the past few years has been to create the cinema of the future. Um, we've done that with our, our film experience, with our uh, recliner chairs and a few other new concepts that we're introducing. So eSports fits into that category really well. And again, it, it just makes perfect sense for a business that specialises in entertainment to, to try to understand at least how they can... Um, take something that is becoming so popular and, and create something new within that business for it. I so, didn't answer your question, though, about ROI. <laughs> I feel guilty now. So I'm going to butt in and say, okay. for me, um, this was one of the bigger bets in many respects because um, any other sport we broadcast, when we buy the rights, we look at the audience and we say, can we build it from there to something else? How many ad ads will that serve or... You know, will someone pay a premium subscription with esports? There was no audience for um, the Australian University Esports League because it didn't exist. In fact, there wasn't even even a, much more than the concept when we started. Um, and so the ROI for us, kind of like um, uh, Scott sort of touched on, is first we're first we're going to attribute that first year to brand. 
the brand building rather than to try and think of it as a, oh, you know, I only served X hundreds of thousands of bucks worth of ads or whatever it is. Um, and then we're, we're going to take that exposure and that brand, um, which might not be a very good ROI, to be perfectly honest. Um, but then year two and three and four, um, it's all about then understanding the commercial opportunities and the first step is covering your rights fee. The second step is getting um, um, value beyond the rights fee and the subscribers and the and, and ad revenue. Uh, and we're very sensitive on the ad revenue because this type of audience really doesn't like ads very much. Um, and so for us, the big, you know, whole, whole separate part of our, <clears throat> our business is a big AI and data part of our business with all of our data scientists on how to how to go beyond advertising and add value like in in stream purchases of products or services that's a completely genuine um, ad service than having to watch a pre-roll ad or 10 minutes of pre-roll before you can get into a stream so yeah the ROI for us I, I think we've probably modeled it out at a sort of a second or third year um, return where it's going beyond the investment we're making in the couple which I think is realistic for a broadcaster in esports yeah so going back to the the general esports market and and where the startups and, and companies sit right now are there any specific services or market areas that you think are missing from esports that should be added you know I think adding adding a bit in adding a bit of my own uh, flavor in there. There's obviously so many leagues and events in Australia. You've got ESL, Throwdown, Showdown, Gfinity, um, and then a bunch of the smaller online leagues that are running quite consistently on top of the OPL and Blizzard. As far as teams, there's at least nine Australian teams that have significant investment, most of which has full, have full-time staff and or players right now. So looking beyond that, uh, are there any specific market segments or, or services you think that are missing? You know, I would love to see very specialist agencies around it because um, two challenges for brands. I'm, I'm now talking to brands kind of like Scott Scott has been doing a bit more um, proactively because he's got a full commercial business to drive a return on it. For us, for the first year, was really about just getting it going. But now we're still talking about brands. Talk, I'm talking to brands about sponsorship or, or um, invo involvement generally in our league um, and, you know, there's a bit of fear still, right? Particularly if you think in most cases sitting on the other side of that table is possibly somebody my age or older who doesn't play games and and reads the news, the mainstream news, tragically, or or thinks of CSGO and sees blood and just goes, oh, that's esports. So um, the way to solve that is, is to have more experts and challenge there is everyone suddenly becomes experts if if they can be paid for it but experts in agencies that people trust who actually spend quite a bit of time working out how to help brands get integrated into esports or get integrated into gaming and then they build a reputation around that and folks like me as a broadcaster and I think Scott you've done some of this sort of work too with some partners in this space so that they can bring brands safely into that space rather than the broadcaster saying, you know, in my context, the broadcaster saying it's totally safe. I mean, we have chosen titles carefully in partnership with the AEL so that we can broadly stay away from um, certain titles that would might you know, scare away some mainstream non-endemic brands. But that doesn't necessarily work. They don't actually know how to get involved 
um, they don't know their strategies. We talked about in that previous question. So I'd love to see, and there are a couple, by the way, you know, um, the Bastion folks do a lot of work in this space, a couple of others who um, are really bringing value to those brands and helping them understand risks and opportunities and and how to invest and get involved. Well, your business is a perfect example of it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Matt. I think that's kind of hit the nail on the head there. I think one of the things that I really noticed um, this year, just getting more across, you know, live esports is that, um, and this might be kind of a little off topic here, but, or off key, but um, agencies that help teams build the media presence of their players. So I think a lot of players um, that have come up that haven't had exposure to media are just naturally, as anyone would be, quite nervous and don't really know how to approach, I guess, the presentation of being in front of a camera and having that banter. And I think that that's something that as the industry evolves and matures, that will just naturally come. But it's it's noticeable now, definitely from my standpoint, that you kind of get uh, an esports player in front of a camera and they're amazing when they're playing the game but as soon as i have to talk about the gameplay or talk about the banter within the team it, it just is really obvious that they're um, not confident in what they're saying when in essence they're they're experts in what they're doing i mean they're the best of the best that's why they're in a pro team that's why they're a pro player so that should naturally come across within their media presentation and i think that that will add to the broadcast quality of you know the content that's being um, put out there when you have these players that are just naturally charismatic and really confident and can have great banter when they're on camera and i think that that's just one thing that i've definitely personally noticed that i think um there, there's an opportunity for certain agencies to work specifically with players on their media presence yeah i think that i think that's brilliant and it's something that you know coming from a, a purely grassroots endemic uh, point of view which is myself that people have been talking about for a long time and no one's been able to action on properly yet and yeah i think if anyone in this room or anyone listening to the podcast would like to get into that area it'd be a fantastic fantastic way to cement yourself in a, in a growing industry and look i i agree with um some of the esports team owners and, and while globally you know most of the funding and the attention is going into teams people like cloud nine raising you know 40 50 million 30 million dollars drake investing in in 100 Thieves, um, you know, in Australia, you're seeing a lot of private uh, capital raises that are going quite well. People like Order, who are, you know, their um, investor manuscript was was out into public and you can see how much money they're spending. So, you know, teams are the ones that are growing quite a lot. And I do agree with some of the team owners in saying that teams are going to be some of the highest value properties in the future because ultimately they own the talent. And the talent in esports, while because like we said before, it's entertainment and sport, they're both influencers and professional players, there's going to be a lot of money there in the future. So I think that if you know, you're looking at a startup, startup or you're looking to pivot into that area, it's something that's, yeah, 100% definitely worth looking into. So for both of you, um, you're talking to non-endemic companies all the time. Uh, engaging with them you've obviously worked with some big companies in the past yourself so what's what's stopping the cash from rolling in a lot of the endemic people um, keep saying that esports is the next biggest thing you know there's obviously a lot of people that are playing it uh, in Australia you know if you look at the publisher numbers they're quite large globally they're quite large but you know quite frankly why aren't the millions of dollars rolling in yet what are the steps that we need to to start working towards to get there um Often you often when you look at a um, sporting property in the broad in in the monetization model, you look at this chocolate wheel, right? Between broadcast rights, um, uh, brand um, uh, influences, all the various dimensions of monetization, and esports 
<clears throat> skews really heavily in a couple and is really light on in a, in, in a few others. Um, so broadcast rights is an area where it's way behind the others. Um, thank God for that. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be in it. But, yeah, for sure. Um, but that's a huge opportunity um, for esports to be able to show those massive opportunities to brands beyond just me in the role as a broadcaster, but to brands to activate. I mean, the, the opportunity to activate in esports done well is a fraction of the cost of, you know, taking a naming rights of a, um, a national sport. Um, except what brands struggle with is, is having the confidence because it's not as established. And so generally what happens is they go, you know, yeah, we want to, we really would love to either sponsor a team or a league or whatever, but we don't really know what, how, what the metrics are that are going to come out the other side and we don't know what the risks are. Um, particularly, we were talking on that last subject about going down into teams and players, you know, do the players have all the necessary contracts in place that they're going to be brand protective? <laughs> Um, and in many cases, they don't, of course. So, um, so the barriers typically, when I'm talking to brands, is firstly data. And so the, the mission for us is, unlike some of the other, or pro let's face it, the primary broadcaster, which we, every bit of data that we collect, we um, anonymize, of course, but we present that to the brands. So they can know demos, geographies, um, um, watch time, titles that are watched higher than others so that they can make really educated choices about how they invest. Um, and then second, uh, I guess, is ultimately um, to that point I just made before, we're, we're trying to f fill a, a space in the broadcast spectrum, but uh, I think if, if you're educating a brand on the opportunity, you need to demonstrate why the opportunity is material, not just in reaching fans and audiences, but how it benchmarks somewhat to um, other, uh, whether it's sports or, or, or marketing investment. And as soon as you start doing those comparisons, it's so stark <laughs> how big the opportunity is or how much, and frankly, they don't necessarily need to invest at the same level you would if you went into a major sporting franchise. They can start at a much more modest level and then measure the result, how they do their measurements. So yeah, that would be the couple of things I would say about that. Yeah, I think I think the reoccurring theme here is just uncertainty, and it, it is hard for brands to come into a space when there there isn't clarity around the exact numbers that they're getting locally versus globally, and well, not on all platforms, obviously, but you know, primary ones. And I think also what I've found um, quite strange, you know, having um, worked in cinema advertising and now I'm kind of building esport media packages, is that you'll have brands that have no qualms about putting their advertising in films like Overlord or, you know overly violent movies that you know have an ma if not an r rating but as soon as you mention a game like um Ciesco or you know another violent game it's all of a sudden it's like we can't be associated with that because it's too violent it's like well this is this is odd because i swear i just saw your ad you know in this you know predator movie for example so i, I think it is an educational piece and i think again that that's potentially where a brand and a business like hoyts can add value to the industry from a non-endemic standpoint because we can say let's look at this media package the same way we look at film. Um, you don't have to be against an MA title or an R18 title. You can be against, um, you know, a family-friendly yeah, title if you want to in yeah. the sense of Rocket League. But our, our whole um, kind of strategy here is to remain agnostic. We don't want to particularly align with the title or 
you know, a, partic a particular developer, we want to align with the community. So for us, from our standpoint, it is engaging with the fans. And um, I think the more that you see non-endemics come into the space in a really safe and secure way, knowing that they're protected from potential audience shortfalls or they're protected from any sort of brand harm by aligning with um, something a little safer, then we'll start to see this becoming a much more uh, safer area for brands to get involved with. So hopefully next year. I think they also struggle, even we struggle, um, as I said, with we're a digital broadcaster. So, you know, if you if you, if you you only spend all of your marketing in one channel, you would fail. Um, anybody who blows all their money on Facebook and Google ads will will not grow the brand and the, comp and, the um, and the reach if they don't look at that multi-channel model. It's kind of a one-on-one marketing uh, because you create a halo effect by being relevant and seen in various spots. But I think what happens a bit with esports is er a lot of the brands are getting pitched these one-offs. You know, come and sponsor this, chuck up a stand there, put up a, uh, we'll put your bumper on this thing for the next. And and what they're looking for is an integrated, multi-channel, physical, um, fan engagement proposition like they would expect it from any um, sport or entertainment service. So if you go and get heavily involved in the Easter show, you don't just turn up and chuck your brand on the, the you know, your KFC brand on the, um, on the motorbikes. You're looking at how do I integrate into sales of product? How do I integrate into uh, merchandising? How do I integrate into tickets? You know, and that's the value chain that is difficult just now in esports, and that's kind of our job to help solve that, frankly, um, as, as people who are trying to pull together that integrated value proposition. And that's why I go back to the power of having agencies that really help brands to, to completely connect it like they're used to buying properties in other spots, in other categories. Yeah. And, you know, from my own experience coming from uh, working in endemic brands, so working for those who don't know who's listening, I've worked at Corsair as their first employee in Australia doing PR marketing for two years and working for Thermaltake for four years and, and their, uh, you know, manufacturers, is that in the outside market in sports, you know, it's fairly standard to spend a one-to-one -one sponsorship versus actual fan engagement and implementing that. Whereas a lot of the times in esports, the budgets are a lot lower. The staffing definitely is a lot less. Like I said, I was literally the only employee in Australia for Corsair. So it's very hard to do that one-to-one. -one. So generally what you're relying on is spending the sponsorship money with a team, say Avant, who I worked with, and then they have to engage and activate on their stuff alone. So I think sometimes it can almost be what I'm getting from this is kind of the blind leading the blind, where a small esports team who's maybe secured a little bit of seed funding and, um, and, or, and or angel funding, maybe their CEO is now full-time, or part-time you know they're trying to pitch to a commonwealth bank and, and they're not quite sure exactly what they're doing so you know a lot of that is the the growing pains of of um you know the esports industry and where it sits at the moment and you know who can take that leap uh, as you both have to you know investing early and then reaping the benefits from from being those early investors so if there was um you know a couple of bit of tidbits to advice you'd like to give to the endemic esports companies as well as a little bit of different advice to the non-endemic esports companies. What what are what would those be? Whether you're trying to advise them on the ways they should grow, or the ways that they should enter the market, or just some major things that they should take into account, especially learning from some of your, uh, you know, I wouldn't say failures, but learning from some of the shortfalls that you've run into over your esports relationship. 
Yeah, I'm probably not qualified on the endemic. I'll probably leave that leave that to you. But in 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 the non-endemic, um, you know, without sort of replaying the things we've talked about, um, I would absolutely find someone to provide you good guidance and help, and and um, and take some time. For God's sake, don't not do anything. <laughs> um, that's a tragedy when everyone sits around kind of staring. What are we doing in esports? Oh, another quarter's gone boom. Well, you know that's that's um, that is silly when it's growing as fast as it is, and the and there's a huge audience that frankly isn't in your traditional media, You're not reaching them with traditional media. Um, so definitely start, but start by getting some good advice. Um, uh, and a great start is obviously listening to this podcast or or talking to Chris and others who are, you know, one of the things about um, people who have been through the journey you've been with, Chris, you know, is they're very generous with their advice and frankly, a little less about trying to sell and a little bit more about making sure that they create a brand for themselves with those, you know, a, a reputation, sorry, with those brands that they can always reflect on and say, well, that was a lot of good quality trusted advice. Um, so it's, it, you know, th that's the first step, spend some time, get out and get involved. Um, and that particularly goes for CMOs and, uh, or in, in, you know, smaller companies for that person who's running marketing is, um, you know, you, you have to go to the events and you have to understand the gaming titles and the gaming community. And, um, because that's uh, state the obvious anyone know your audience after you've done your research and however long that needs to take, um, I think then it's that um, the other kind of piece I would recommend is, um, even though this is contrary to what I did, which was, you know, okay, buy a, um, um, a rights to a, a broadcast for a, for a league, don't be afraid to start in modest ways um, to test and learn. Um, and, and you said something, Chris, just before, which I think is absolutely probably the single biggest opportunity if you're a non-endemic and you're coming into esports, is this is not a community where you broadcast your brand. Um, this is a community where you connect with, I mean, they're broadly called influencers, but connect with um, people who have successfully built their own audiences and um, and use that opportunity in a, in a more modest commercial arrangement for them to start to bring it to life because they'll tell you how you ought to express your brand to their community rather than you coming up with some crazy marketing campaign you think is genius. Um, so that's a long way of saying influencers or, or, or people with um, pop popularity or followers or, or, um, or in the commercial part of esports are a fantastic way to get involved because you'll miss all the mistakes that you would make if you if you just sat in the boardroom coming up with the marketing campaign to talk to a 18 to 24 year old gamer, that would be a failure, I reckon. Yeah, and again, without kind of repeating what we've already spoke about, I think it is just knowing your place in the industry and, and how you can add value to it. And I think it is, um, to your point, Matt, you know, seeking advice from people that are experts because it is hard for a non-endemic to come into the space and, um, get across, I guess, the, the breadth of knowledge that it requires to enter the space and um, really leaning on partnerships and, and different, I guess, kind of value levers that you can pull to make your offering stronger. And also, I think, staying true to your vision. So really understanding what the strategy is that you want to have with esports and, and um, 
doing the test and learns that you need to to have a solid understanding of what's going to work and and what's not going to work and i think also being prepared to to fail as well in certain areas like if you are going to test something that is um that hasn't been done before in the space you have to fail fast and learn from it and move on and 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 kind of add that to the strategy rather than let that i guess break or disrupt the vision in any sort of way and um that's definitely been a key learning for, for hoyts as a business um it's staying focused on the long-term objectives and um, progressing with things as they come and, and, yeah, just staying true to that vision. Yeah, I'd say for, for me, uh, a lot of my advice for the endemic people that are looking to pitch the non-endemics, number one is something we've already discussed that you brought up as well, Matt, which is researching your partner. Uh, it just goes to the age-old book of how to win friends and influence people. You need to know who you're talking to and know what makes them tick. Um, and we talked about this a lot with Ross uh, from Corsair in the last in the last uh, podcast as well, talking about uh, try to pitch to them things that they've done already before or like things and ways you can implement that. So, for example, if you're pitching a non-endemic, try to rely on influencers. And if nothing else, if they're really not understanding it, start talking about CPM and the differences and then try to gain the knowledge and work from there. The other one I would say that that um, both of you identified as well is build a relationship and also educate before pitching. Because if you look at it, in, if nothing else, if you get these companies to understand and to buy into the market they're likely to then invest and they're also likely to come back my first ever esports education seminar i did with a company uh who's a they're a semi-endemic distributor they had one person in the whole company that knew about esports who handled everything related to esports with them and just kind of fed back the general reports as they should do as an employee they left the company uh and then the rest of them said well crap we know absolutely nothing about esports we sponsor a team we're working with influencers uh and we need to renegotiate our contract for 2017 to 2018 and they're asking us for 25 percent more money what do we do? We have no idea. So if you can educate the rest of the company, uh, whether you're internal or external, then you can get that proper buy-in. So then the CMO, the CEO, they at least have a bit of a general idea and they know that it's a good thing they should be involved in. Because otherwise, often you'll find that the things that are hard to understand are the first things that get cut from these relationships. And you see that even in endemic companies. When someone comes into a, to a Corsair or a Razor or whoever and they really love CSGO, generally you'll see a little bit more money go towards that area. If they generally love modding or they generally love influencers you'll see some of that money going obviously there is a global brand strategy that happens but there is a bit of a skew either way and the other thing is more brands into esports equals more brands into esports you know imagine uh if and when i would say when the first automotive brand comes in say if toyota comes in all of a sudden subaru ford holden etc mitsubishi is saying wait a minute why why are these people involved and why are we not involved? If they're spending all this money in this space, there must be a reason behind it. Because contrary to, to popular belief in a lot of people that I've seen misconceptions in esports, people go, oh, what is 50 grand to KFC? What's 100 grand? Well, it's actually quite a lot of money for anyone. Uh, it's a whole employee's paycheck for a whole year. So it's not, you know, it's not the case that a lot of people in esports talk about, oh, let's just go pitch to trader. You know, they might just give us 500 grand because they feel like it because they've got it sitting around. They've got boards to uh, talk to you know the marketing managers have people to report to from the bottom to the top so definitely where that education comes in but when you start seeing some of these brands come in and we've seen this with the cinema space especially Hoyt's increasing their investment all of a sudden event who who've basically kind of you know departed from 
esports a bit have suddenly jumped straight back into it and started doing some things with League of Legends with the Ministry of Sport, the Ministry of Sport, no BS seminar, etc. So when you see some of those brands come in, the rest start to invest. And we can even learn from that as well from the endemic market. You know, when companies like HyperX started throwing a bunch of money at esports, you saw a lot of the other endemic companies start to step up the game as well. Razer, who were previously big and then dormant, came back into esports. Corsair coming to esports globally in a big in a big way and to locally. And yeah, definitely, um, you know, like I said, spend a lot, spend a lot of time educating them. And this is what we've had to do in the past as well. One of the pitfalls in where we're sitting in esports at the moment, like Matt said, the the pie, there's a massive gap in the broadcast rights. Yes, that's that's definitely part of it. But another part of it is that you know, we, as I say, we collectively in esports have spent the last six to eight years educating the endemics on what esports is, which is a bit funny in its own right. Generally, you don't have to. But now that they're all, for lack of a better term, clapped out their budget-wise. So all the endemics, especially in Australia, are spending as much money as they will spend until the market grows. And the market's not going to grow a whole lot until the population grows. Corsair, Gigabyte, etc. can't sell more products until the market grows and generally that's kind of attached to where the population is. So now that we've educated all of them, you know, they're rather small companies. There might be $20, $30 million revenue. You know, there's a portion of that revenue that goes into marketing as with general business practice. So now that that's happened, we've spent all this time educating these people, but it's not enough money to sustain a full business. It's not enough money to sustain paying you know, five players plus a coach, $45,000 salaries when you're earning, you know, 10, 15, $25,000 a quarter from endemic sponsors. So now it's up to us to educate the non-endemic sponsors of which comes more money. However, it takes a lot more time. As you saw with people like Matt was saying, you know, he spent two, two and a half years. Hoyt's as well spent a year, year and a half researching into this space. So while, you know, Netflix and, and other startups seem like an overnight success, obviously if you look into Netflix, it's been around since 97. So some of these things do take time. But for me as a startup founder, it's about how do you draw that revenue in the short term while still being genuine? And then how do you build that into the long term? So for me, some of the things that I've talked about tonight, as you can tell, is the influencer side of things. For nothing else, I found a lot of success talking to non-endemics about influencers because it boils right down to the fact that they're working with influencers already. They understand what influencers are. And the CPM for a gaming influencer versus a fitness or fashion influencer is just so much more understandable and also cheaper, often half, sometimes a quarter or a third of the price that you can use that to then start getting these people into those different areas so thanks for joining us today matt and also scott thanks uh can you let us know a little bit about what you've got planned for the next year or two within esports even from a top level and then also let everybody know where they can follow yourself uh if they want to connect with you in the future and the companies that you work for or work with yeah cool um so as i said i think we 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 learned that um Gee whiz, it's hard to build an audience on a brand new streaming platform for esports when they're all hanging out on one platform. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> um, it's ironic, but, um, uh, you know, there is no other distribution channel in the world that has 100% of the audience like Twitch does, just about, you know, in, in the Western world anyway. Um but um, you know we've got to we've got as a broadcaster we've got to get that right because that's our business model and we've got to work out how to be different and how to be um, how to be more perhaps fair to those that are broadcasting on our platform. So um, we're on a journey of building audience and 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 educating 
at least the existing audience that there are other alternatives to just one platform to to watch your um, your gaming services or your uh, sorry your um, your bro- the broadcasts of our esports. Ultimately, we'd like to build in um, uh, individual streaming onto our platform. That's um, in the in the pipe for two thousand and nineteen. Um, the thing we learned as a brand, you know, talking to the non-endemics was that uh, as a digital broadcaster, so you could think of this as like, okay, you've got your content strategy around esports, but what's your activation strategy and what's your, uh, what's your plan for kind of physically reaching the audience? So this next year we'll put um, a considerable part of our esports or, or gaming budget into participating in a lot more events um, because because we felt like we didn't have enough surround sound, to be perfectly honest. Um, and uh, we were talking about this before we started the podcast. We really want to work out how to do more close, more act, more active work with the universities. Because um, it's all very well to have the participants and the teams and the clubs, but, you know, there's a lot of peripheral folks at uni who are also gamers privately, might not be in a club or they're not competing in the uni league, um, and they're a potential um, audience for our content uh, and ultimately, um, as we've seen with esports, with our esports at least, the community gets right behind your brand if you're doing good stuff. You know, if you care, you don't have to even get it all right. Like you can fail and you know, and then put your hand up and say, "Oh, we stuffed that up." Um, very understanding, as long as you don't constantly do it. Um, but uh, so you know, our our social following in our esports, you know, is growing faster than some of the social following we have in some of our other traditional sports, which is pretty exciting. So more activations, more features on our broadcast, getting more physically closer to the fans and the audiences. That's two thousand nineteen. Um, I better just talk about my Twitter handle, right? Because one thing I've learned is they're not hanging out in Facebook. <laughs> like all of us are all blokes, so I speak a lot more to gamers and and people involved in the esports in, industry on um, on Twitter. So that's Lampup, and um, and our our branded uh, channel is Ovo Play. Um, quite purposely, we we like to be a playful, fun, uh, chilled out brand. All of our um, team who look after our social media and our direct uh, contact center and customer service are all based here in Sydney. So. They have real conversations with people every day, like real people. Um, and that's a bit of our special source. So um, you can hit us up on ovo.com.au or check out the app, download it from the App Store on Google uh, and Apple. It's free for everyone anywhere in the world. So um, uh, no barriers to getting access to some of that cool content. And thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, 2019 for us um, is definitely shaping up to be a really big year. We definitely plan on doing a lot more live local events out of the um, arena that we've built in partnership with Gfinity at the venue here. So um, that's something that we're hoping to have regular events held at um, throughout the course of next year. And then a big, big focus is the viewing party uh, side of things. So um, we've selected 10 locations across our ANZ network and they're going to become our dedicated esports hubs uh, where we live stream global esports content into and host these viewing parties. And really the, the big, big focus next year is, is perfecting or creating this cinema esports experience and, and what does that look like and how do we evolve that to a level where it adds so much more engagement than viewing it you know, at home on a computer screen that it's something that you actively want to do on a regular basis. And for me, that's incredibly exciting. And again, I'm just really stoked that I have the opportunity to, to work on 
perfecting that. And I think it's something that will can always be perfecting and always kind of evolving. But um, the partnership side of things is is a really exciting space. And I think that the more non-endemics we can get coming into um, these viewing parties and these live local tournaments in a really safe and secure way, the better. So um, that's going to be the focus for us next year. In terms of social following, LinkedIn's probably the best channel. Um, it's where I do most of my, you know, esports updates and whatnot. Um, I need to get a lot more involved in Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle Scoop A Fiasco, so feel free to follow that. There's not a lot of content on there right now, but there'll be there'll be a lot more next year. So, um, Chris, mate, thanks for having me. It's been great being on the podcast. Yeah, so thanks to the audience who attended here as well and, and thanks to those listening online and live for this. There's going to be a short break and then we're going to commence with a Q&A. If you would like to prepare any questions in the meantime, feel free to do so. Apparently there's a bar tab too, so if you guys want to grab a drink from the bar, um, it's on Hoyts. <laughs> the recording and i will test test one two all right so what we're going to do um is basically whoever wants to ask a question you can come down here and use this microphone because otherwise you're not going to be on the podcast at all and you're just going to hear one side of it so yeah feel free to come down and, and ask any questions and I'll, I'll pass you the microphone and then um yeah we'll, we'll try to answer them it's always who wants yeah well you can Um, main question is when you guys have other people you have to answer to, maybe they're not all completely sold into esports in the same way you are, uh, and we all have a sense that there is a big long-term play here and that it's absolutely going in the right direction, but when things aren't trending as you might have hoped or you might project, how do you keep convincing those people that the right thing is to stay the course or to tweak what you're doing? How do you ensure that that you keep that roadmap in place for the people who haven't necessarily bought into the idea that esports is a great direction for sponsorship? Um, the honest truth is, um, and I think, I think I've said this somewhere on the No BS tour, um, I, I absolutely knew this would be uh, a bit of a journey first couple of years, so, um, but it was cost effective compared to perhaps some other options. So I signed the longest possible agreement I could get my board to agree to. <laughs> so we signed a five-year deal because I, I, I knew we'd learn some things. I'd, I'd get some things wrong. Um, and I was just saying to, to Chris before, um, one of the things we got wrong, well, not, not wrong, but we sort of really didn't appreciate was this point around, um, okay, you can be the digital broadcaster, but that's not enough. Um, and so to answer your question, the this year moving into that physical uh, environment and being at events and activating and being involved, um, you know, so that people can touch and feel the brand and, and see you physically is really important to us. And so the thing I do to try and keep it, keep the board um, supportive of the esports investment relative to other more obvious ones is to constantly um, be prepared to stop doing something and start doing something else or try something new or experiment with something. Um, because what is great about eSports, other than some big infrastructure things, I mean, Scott, you've placed a big bet with the 
with you know effectively saying I'm not going to sell a, a, a cinema movie ticket I'm going to sell an event that and that is a big bet I played it's a big bet with the rights for a for a broadcast and the cost that goes with that but that doesn't mean that's all you do you might say we're going to try um for argument's sake influencers connect who are already connecting to our brand we might uh try different types of events um we might uh we, we even did an outdoor um can't can't quite describe what it was, but it was this big festival in Chatswood, and we thought, well, that could be really relevant because, uh, and it was a um, a big sort of on stage um, uh, event around gaming and and with kids who are learning learning to play games and showing parents that 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 it's a safe environment. So we're we're trying lots of things and working out as best we can measure it what things. Um, are working on what are not and peeling back a bit on where we've realized that we might have spent a ton of money like perfecting the post broadcast vod so that it was had beautiful intros and outros and all that sort of stuff i said actually fans just want to watch the event quite honestly they don't want to watch it a 10 times after it's not like a um it doesn't have the same qualities of a movie where we we could watch a movie four or five times um so let's take all that money we were spending on post-production and put it into some other areas uh, yeah, that's that's really, I guess, the, the key answer to that from that perspective. Yeah, I think from my standpoint, it's it's been having a really clear strategy and it's been um, the way that we articulated that strategy as well. And I, again, have been very, very fortunate that I work for a company that is very forward thinking and um, does have, you know, a, a big kind of vision for the future around how can we continue to evolve our brand and our business to cater to the demand of various forms of entertainment and esports fits into that perfectly and by no means has it been smooth sailing it, it has been a challenge and i mean you know hoyts is a traditional business and you know we we have an expertise in one particular field and that's you know primarily film um so convincing the rest of the leadership team that this was something that we should definitely be moving into and investing in um you know had its challenges but i think you know personally from my standpoint i, I like to think that um, part of my personal passion for esports has, has come through or when I say my passion for esports it's more about my passion for diversifying a traditional brand into a new vertical and that's something that you know I wake up every day and I feel like I'm on a mission to, to kind of create something new and exciting and I think that that just translates naturally to the rest of the team and um, and yeah I mean again we've been really fortunate that we're owned by a company that is very forward-thinking and is very willing to invest in this space and to Matt's point, it has been trial and error. There's been certain things that we've worked on that have been really successful and um, we've taken a lot of key learnings from those and there's been some things that we've we've attempted to do that haven't been as successful and, you know, we probably got more learnings from those. So um, I guess to answer your question, it is just having a really clear understanding of what you want to achieve over various years of, you know, a five, ten-year strategy um, and again, just staying really true to that vision and knowing that there will be some things that, um, that are successful and that there will be some things that aren't, and that's okay. Questions? Yeah. Uh, pass this up to you. Uh, cheers, Chris. Uh, my name's Stuart. Um, uh, big time fan, loving what's happening with Gfinity and, and especially... Uh, with Hovo, to be honest. Um, but in the argument of endemic versus non-endemic 
brand uh, adoption within brands, especially within the Oceanic region. Uh, I'd love to get your viewpoint and understanding of how you know, Hoyts and Over Yourself can work not only with, uh, say, leagues or game developers, but more importantly with the teams themselves to identify, especially coming from a broadcasting and entertainment point, uh, to, to be able to extend that further to allow brands themselves and give more information or guidance for those teams to be able to market themselves as in a sense of uh, coming from Val Morgan or anything like that and to be able to say, like, say, if a brand was working with the likes of Hungry Jacks like the OPL or any of these other brands, how would you encourage those brands to... Uh, we discussed it earlier, and I, uh, the, the concept of the individual um, broadcasters or like the streamers or anything like that, or the players themselves, their own personal strength to be able to talk. Would you see yourselves then being able to partner with those brands to encourage that coaching or training to be able to be more of a, a branding or an advertisement agency or would you still look externally in that area as, as, as coming from your particular areas as a broadcaster and, and more of a marketing advertisement entertainment complex? Uh, I'll, I'll take the question first. Um, good question and full of lots of rich areas to explore. Um, perhaps one thing I can relate in, in respect to individuals and I guess ultimately teams is one of the things I'm passionate about, um, as Scott sort of um, alluded to about the, the stuff I'm doing is a lot of all of the staff in the AEL bar a couple are working predominantly as um, contributors in the community. They're, they're all not highly paid esports commentators or casters. Uh, they're getting their first shot, actually. And what makes it very cool is these guys, are, I remember one guy came on, uh, he was doing the Dota stream, it was his first time casting, and he went to the camera, I am nervous as shit. <laughs> <laughs> Down the camera. <laughs> Um, and that's so cool, right? Because it's um, th these guys are effectively honing their craft, but at the same time, the audience on the other side loves it because it's real. Um, and uh, and you know, a couple of the guys like Jimmy and others have, have also perfected their craft so well that they're now getting uh, opportunities to cast major events across Southeast Asia and uh, and beyond. And so, um, so I think there's something really powerful in that. The role I guess we ought to play more as you, you know, that question you put about how could we help those individuals and teams, well, the role we ought to play as a broadcaster is how do we package up and tell their stories better? Um, because the truth is, other than, other than what they might be able to do themselves through um, social media and other digital channels, if you look at what TV does really well, uh, is tells a big, long, drawn-out story that gets you really hooked into the whole league and the whole year and the teams and the struggle and the players and the good ones and the bad ones and the good day and the bad day. And um, unfortunately, uh, what's missing a bit, I think, and it's our job as a broadcaster to say, well, how are we investing all around the people and the teams and the and the um, uh, both individually and, and as a team to tell the story to the fans so that the fans are much more engaged in the um, in the emotional side of the the whole um, activity. In my case, it's obviously a league and leading to a grand final. Um, 
So perhaps, you know, in response to your question directly, I think, um, and one of the things we're trying to work out how to do it cost effectively, because actually all that stuff is ridiculously expensive to get people together and, you know, and then get them from like nervous as hell to being able to talk, to being able to then present in front of media. But how do we do that in a really efficient way so that we can, um, uh, in in this year, we can tell a lot more of a backstory about the people and, and where they come from and what they do and build their media experience or their just their time in front of camera or on, on audio. So that's a bit of a mission is to create a lot of short-form content. Yeah, we've got the broadcast. The 90% of our audience will turn up to the broadcast, but it's the short-form content that will create the opportunity for those individuals to build that media experience, build their confidence in front of the camera and confidence as Chris said to be able to talk their story and their strats and all that sort of stuff um and I'm open anyone listening and anyone in the room who's got ideas about how to do that particularly around um the areas we're invested in we're very open to creative people coming to us and saying hey we could put together this that and the other thing because you know we don't know it all we love collaborating with people in the community so don't be afraid to reach out yeah I think from a venue standpoint it's an interesting point you raise around teams because that's definitely an area that we think we can get more involved. So with the Elite Series, the entire tournament is held in the um, arena downstairs. But our intention is once we start to get more, I guess, awareness and interest around um, the Elite Series in other markets from a venue standpoint, that we broadcast that stream into other cinemas and create dedicated zones for those teams kind of like what you see right now with mainstream stadiums where you you know you have the roosters at ANZ um, Allianz Stadium sorry um, so for us it's like we we have the potential to take that content brought it to our broadcast it to our other venues and create hubs for these teams to broaden their fan bases create more richer I guess social experiences around those where we can potentially hold viewing parties for the elite series and have um, you know, a Melbourne order location that becomes the sort of team hub where we can do a number of different activations at that, that venue and whatnot. So that's, that's on the cards and something we're definitely keen to explore. While you're getting the next question, whoever it is is coming down to the microphone. Um, the other thing, you know, Scott and I have been talking about for some time in both directions is how, how some of that premium, you know, um, uh, you know, national uh, pro league content could be even brought onto OVO play and how we could take some of the grassroots up and coming stars and, um, and casters and bring them into the, into the cinema environment. I think it's incumbent for anyone working in esports. Firstly, you've got to have the passion, uh, like, you know, both of us, all three of us, everyone in this room does to turn up to an event like this the second is you got to collaborate like if you just try to play your game in isolation it's crazy because you're you're not creating leverage you're not leveraging i mean i think this would be an incredible environment to have you know a gaming experience delivered by ovo with content and and participants from the community and universities playing the grand final in these sorts of environments so um <clears throat> i'm a huge fan of going okay is when no one's a competitor really in this industry right we're all we're all just kind of growing the overall size of it and um and uh so we owe it to each other to kind of work out how to help each other because we'll benefit ultimately in both directions 
Hey, Aiden from Gamers Group. Um, we focus heavily on content a lot um, as our business, but we're also trying to pivot into kind of tech and things like that. Um, and obviously a big focus of ours is growing the community. Curious to know what you guys kind of have planned and what you've experienced with the grassroots level on how to build that community and what you think we could do to, as a community to build that even further in 2019. No, I got it, I got it. Um, we have to get um, our platforms totally social. So um, we're busy integrating all the major social networks and I don't mean like so you can tweet us, I mean so you can have a real-time chat alongside watching a game, share stuff back and forward. Uh, we'll create viewing rooms where um, the viewers can come together with a camera on themselves while they're watching the content. Um, yeah, so you're kind of trying to do really innovative stuff that really just we got to be different than the other platforms and we've got to think about what is it that makes gaming communities really tight and how do they get closer together uniquely on our platform. So that's super important. Another totally sort of right or left field, whichever way it is, um, thing we're doing, which is kind of a bit blow your mind, is we bought a we bought an AI machine learning company that was um, seven years in the CSIRO, a whole bunch of PhD data scientists, and they've been working on um, the problem the difference between mobile content consumption and, and traditional TV or in-home content consumption is that there's very little context needed when you're sitting, when you're broadcasting onto a TV because the assumption is there's a lounge room, a lounge and people. But mobile is extremely fragmented. If you think about your day, you pick up your phone 300 times and it can be anything from your board to you're trying to get a call, answer an email, you don't want to be disturbed because you're in a meeting, you are travelling on the bus, etc. So th these guys have been working on a problem which is context in mobile is really important because um, our phones at the moment are pretty dumb. They sort of like, they're there, we pick them up and a lot of times we're just, you know, scrolling through for stuff to do or trying to get a job done. And they um, built algorithms to allow us to understand, for example, the Matt gets up every morning, jumps on the bus at 7am, travels for like 25 minutes from home to work, gets to work. He, he's the sort of person who can't use the phone between 8 and 4, but then gets on the bus and travels home. And so in preparation for that, um, the AI will reach into our content library, pre-select a bunch of content that's really personalised. So I want esports, not gymnastics for argument's sake. Um, and upload that to the device and then it waits for that magic mobile moment when you're, when in particular in this example you're travelling um, on the bus and then it pops that content in HD to you. Um, so it's all about bringing content to the right person, the right place and the right time to entertain and engage them. And there's a whole bunch of algorithms w w that were worked on that works out, for example, boredom. So it knows when you're bored. Ironically, the boredom algorithm is how many times you unlock and lock your phone without doing much. Um, in a space of a couple minutes. Um, so, um, so for us, the innovation, uh, and you'll hear this generally, because uh, your question was really uh, to the tech side, that you'll hear this a lot in the tech community is really in AI and personalization and reaching the fan at the right place at the right time and making sure we're not just like a dumb broadcaster that's sort of sitting there waiting for audiences to turn up. Yeah, look, I mean, from, from a grassroots standpoint, you know, as a venue provider, 
our involvement is really with our partners. And I mean, we've seen that already with Gfinity. The the kind of path to pro with Gfinity is very much around, you know, grassroots with that online qualifier um, draft phase and then to the elite draft and then finally to the elite series. So we rely heavily on, on our partnership with Gfinity for that sort of thing. But in terms of the community, I mean, that's that's really where we can get a lot more involved. And it is through creating really rich social experiences within our venues. And I think that, I guess, from a tech standpoint, as we start to see advancements within, you know, handset devices and how they're integrated into eSport content, that that provides a really interesting platform for venues to get a lot more integrated into hosting tournaments and kind of integrating really cool pieces of activations within the, the venue space. So um, that that's definitely formed part of, part, part of our plan. Um, but from our standpoint right now, the focus is really just on creating those really rich social experiences within the venue that um, encourage people to come out and experience esports content in a group um, with their friends, the same way that cinema content is is regularly consumed and making it, I guess, so unique and, and so special that it's it's it drives consumer behavior to, to be done on a much more regular basis than, you know, once a month or you know, once every kind of quarter or something like that. So again, that's, that's the real challenge here. It's how, how do you create that experience and what does that look like and what does it involve? And um, there are a number of aspects that are going to come into play there. Tech's definitely going to be one. Yeah. I mean, we're both um, partly just cementing our brand as being invested and passionate and committed to esports, and that drives preference. Like I've, never seen before in any other category right like let's admit it we wouldn't think of another cinema brand that's as involved as Hoyt's and then when it comes to our choice of which Lux cinema we go to or do we travel that extra 5k's or 10k's to a Hoyt cinema or go to the other end of the shopping center that stuff really does work <laughs> um, and so you you would I'm sure be feeling the um, impact of saying well we're over here and here but the demographic that's coming to um, to Hoyts more broadly can be impacted by that. The frequency, the preference is very powerful because this community gets behind people, A, only when they see you really genuinely do something. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we've only just started to scratch the surface. And I mean, from our standpoint, um, I think it's easy to, to be perceived as, you know, just another non-endemic trying to capitalize on the space. But I think that the longer that we stay you know, within the industry and the more that we show our commitment to it. And I mean, we're, we're trialing a number of different, um, you know, ticket models right now where it's, it's more about adding value than trying to make a profit because in all honesty, the profit's not going to come from ticket sales. It's going to come from long-term brand advocates that interact and engage with the brand on a really deep level. So for us, it's, you know, how, how do we create an experience that, um, is worthwhile and is valued and appreciated by, um, you know, fans within the industry. And, and to be honest, I think that we've, we've gotten to a point now with the Hoyts brand where we've done that really well within cinema. I mean, you look at our recliner concept, you know, we invested you know, hundreds of millions of dollars upgrading our circuit and we didn't increase the ticket price at all. We kept it, you know, as it was before we made that investment. And it was about, you know, adding value to the experience and, and making it unique to our brand. And that's the exact same principle that we're going to apply to esports. Um, and that's why we're in the space. And my answer for the endemics would be uh, the trouble that everyone's going through right now is unlocking the community. So like I play a lot of Dota, 
um, myself just with for fun with mates and I'm like 3,500 MMR, which is apparently like the global average. And in Australia, if I search for a game, a ranked game at 11 a.m. on a Wednesday, it'll take me two minutes to get into a game. However, if you look at the size of the Australian events around, even with the Convictus Dota 2 tournament we had recently, $50,000 in prize pool in Melbourne. Uh, we had the number one team in the world who just won the international, who just won $12 million-ish, came down and played. Uh, we had another you know, massive global powerhouse team like Mineski and then a few teams from China, et cetera, were there. People in the audience when I was there wouldn't be above four, or 500, for example. So a lot of the issue is how do we unlock these people? There's obviously hundreds of thousands of esports fans in Australia that's been confirmed by the studies, but it's also just confirmed through anecdotal evidence, like when you play PUBG or Fortnite and you get 100 people into a server within 30 seconds of trying and you do that over and over and over again, or in League of Legends and such. So how do we unlock these fans to actually come out of the woodwork? Why do the OPL, Oceanic Pro League of Legends players, have an average of 600 to 1,500 followers? So, and, and you know, why do the esports teams only have 5, 10, 15,000 Twitter followers? Why do these live events that we're running only get 50, 100, 150 people turning up when there are tens, hundreds of thousands of fans per state in Australia? So a lot of it is people are trying to figure out that algorithm right now, not only of how do we unlock these people, but esports globally is trying to figure out that algorithm of how do we actually make money from our fans? So if you look at these esports teams, even though they're raising $30 million Series B, etc and you know drake's investing in hundred thieves and they're selling companies like hundred thieves are selling merchandise that's very good still according to the report from forbes there's only one cash flow positive team in the world um of that scale and then if you look into australia it's it's fairly similar as well so you know while there are this goes back to the general pro, the general podcast we we're talking about matt was was reiterating the point that the pie is uh, lacking in the area of broadcast rights there's still a lot of other uh, fan engagement and community possibilities that are lacking in the form of esports teams. You don't see esports teams selling 100,000 memberships like you do with some AFL teams, for example. And you don't even see that with the biggest global international team selling that. However, you know, some of the international teams have unlocked it a bit better. You've got things like Fnatic, who've had a million followers on Facebook since about three or four years ago and such. So it's a question that the global esports scene is still trying to figure out. And maybe in Australia, if we can get ahead of it, maybe we can figure out some of it and um, teach them the secret source. We used to, I mean, you know, um, by the way, my Twitter handle was LandPup because I started playing Lands and that was the first time I realised I needed a social media handle. Um, and, and I was thinking back to, like, that was the first step of getting us all together, right? You know, in the old days. Well, it still is in the old days for me. Um and, um, and you know, why did people come together? Well, they came together, A, to get over the problem of shit broadband, <laughs> let's be honest, and um, and wanted to play in a zero latency environment where everything was equal and you could not claim ping as your reason why you, you, you know, you got sucked, yeah, basically. But, um, but whatever it was that got us out of there, when you were there, it was awesome, or when you are there. I'm talking a little bit in history when I used to go to the lands a lot more. So it's just that. You've got to try and work out what is the incentive for them to come, the stuff you're doing. Mm. Um, and honestly, it, you can you can do all the other stuff around the commercial side, but it's really about them and them being with their peers and their mates and then and then the competition. So, you know, the, the biggest opportunity I see missing when we see these big events is how do you get them competing at the event on a mass scale? 
even if it was an event in a cinema or an event uh, at a at a major, um, uh, you know, uh, where there's professionals, where's the space that all the participants who turned up can play on a mass scale? <clears throat> pardon me, and and do that ultimately so that they get to enjoy the experience of gaming in that bigger community. You do that. Take the one thing that we love about lands, which was you know competing with all these people and looking across the room and seeing the person you just beat. Bring that into the into these sorts of environments. You will get everyone out of out of the house. You know, I think. <laughs> yeah. I might be wrong. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no. Look, I I agree. And I mean, at the end of the day, it comes back to the experience, right? And if that if that experience is something that's a key behavior driver or a key motivator for these fans, then. Um, I think it's it's just understanding how to harness that because I was asked a question earlier about you know setting up cinemas with tons of computers similar to what you were talking about and that was something that initially was something we explored but I think the biggest standout for me was that well, that's kind of us being something we're not like we're not a venue a land venue and it just doesn't make sense for a cinema company to put a ton of computers in their cinema infrastructure because it just doesn't quite it just doesn't fit so what does it look like if you were to take that same concept and apply it to a cinema infrastructure which can be done it just is a different form of technology i guess so you know again the concepts there it's the experience and um exactly (laughs) um yeah so it, it will be very interesting over the next couple of years to see how esports as an industry evolved and to see how um, the competitive nature across multiple devices kind of continues to grow and expand. Uh, next question. Yeah, no, it's Stuart again. Uh, thanks, uh, Matt and Scott. Um, straight on that point is actually something I'm very much interested in is um, India has recently announced that in the early year they'll be having DreamHack. And that fits right in with that point of the idea of a massive LAN party that really does bring out the community more than anything else. Australia and its disparate locations of Brisbane having a massive population, Sydney having a massive location, Melbourne and Adelaide and Perth, for everyone that's listening, New Zealand, we do love you. Um, (laughs) But the idea from there is that the idea of potentially either having an official or something similar of a dream hack location of something like whether it be Hoyts or whether anything else it's sponsored so that the stream of the large events could be then broadcast across from there. You could tie that in with everything else. Does that sound appealing to that? Do you think that would fit in with the idea of whether we team up with Europe for dream hack or do we bring it internally here to make it an Australian twist? Do you feel that's something that could be an ultimate trigger to start bringing them out of the shells to come out of their homes and they come into those locations. I guess it depends kind of at what point where we're talking about here with, you know, esports tournaments, I guess specifically within the cinema space because, I mean, DreamHack is, you know, very much, you know, a land party in its sort of nature or land setup in its nature. So I think the really interesting thing when you look at a network like Hoyt's is, you know, we have 50 locations across ANZ, which if you're looking at a singular cinema suite at each location, it is fairly small in terms of capacity. We're talking between maybe two, 300 people per cinema. But when you times that by 50, then all of a sudden you have a much broader network. And if you're able to connect all of those locations um, and, and have that competing, you know, uh, 
Exactly. Stay, stay v state on, on, you know, a connected server that switches out in between cinema, different views within the cinema screen. Then all of a sudden, that's a fairly interesting concept that you're looking at there. And it's something that could be incredibly exciting because, again, like looking at that from a tournament standpoint in an individual cinema, wow, that's huge. And yes, that's so scalable. And that would be incredible to kind of um usher in but then there's a potential to broadcast that as well into other cinema locations and then all of a sudden you expand the reach even further and it becomes a much bigger event so again this is where i, I genuinely see exhibition partners and you know hoyt specifically really adding value to, to tournaments in that sense but you know it, it is it is a long way off realistically i mean i think you know what we're talking about here from a cinema standpoint is a good couple of years away but you know it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen and Exactly. There you go. Yeah, you're you're the only practical um, proposition for doing this at scale, because it'd be all very well to set up a massive hall and have a mass participation event at PAX or IM or whatever, Um, but that's 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 missing. A everyone is not in the state, and B it's not um, it's a one off event. Whereas you have both the local localization that could service, you know, smaller regional centres, p- people who, you know, might find it a lot more difficult to get to a um, a, a big event. Uh, at the same time as having the national connectivity, I mean, it's um, there probably isn't, you know, the only other thing you could think of. Actually, you can't. There's there's shopping centre networks. What are the other physical infrastructure that are networked? They're not networked like a a broadcaster, which is what it takes. It's not just about the seats, right? And we know this. This is why esports is taking off. It's not just about a participation. It's also about participating in watching the result of whether you get knocked out or you're st- you're still in. You're like you want to know what the result is. You know you want to watch it. So, yeah, you know, I couldn't think of a better model for bringing participation into an event experience. And that's something that's missing from and shouldn't be lost because I reckon that's actually the secret source of gaming and esports. And it's what you don't get if you go to an NRL game. You're sitting there as an audience, you don't have any participation, and then you go home and then you talk about it or whatever. We ought to not lose sight of the fact that what makes this so powerful, and I'm not saying that other audiences don't play that don't play won't be interested, but what makes it so powerful is everyone can participate. <laughs> which is kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah, potential's enormous. And then, I mean, I think it goes even beyond that too when you think of different ways that you can engage with the audience and um, integrate different, you know, activations, which is yeah, a point I, that you've co- raised constantly. Coming back to the question of teams, yeah. you know, um, yeah, exactly. I'd love, I'm an amateur PUBG player for argument's sake, I'd love to play with more professional teams or alongside them or even beat them. That would be kind of cool. Yeah. Um, even get tips, you know, but but you got to have some. F- like I can do that on uh, any time night of the week if I if I can on online. But to do it physically at the same time or in a in like a networked environment like Hoyts have, you know, that'd be huge, right? That'd be the whole reason you'd come out. Actually, participation is one thing, but coming out and hanging out with people who are ten times better than you and learning ten things that'd be huge. Yeah, a lot of that's about understanding like uh, who you're marketing to and the way you're marketing. And a lot of the advice I give to the the local people that are trying to run internet cafe tournaments and local LAN parties is the fact of don't even set up a Twitch stream if you're 
pandering only to an amateur audience because there's so much investment as as matt's definitely identified as well there's so much investment you have to put into a broadcast and i find that if you don't reach that level there's kind of a there's kind of a bar you have to get to if you don't reach that bar it makes your tournament your company and what you're doing look so much worse than if you weren't even to have one whatsoever so a lot of the time with these small uh, you know, with these small internet cafe tournaments and land parties and, and land centers that come to me talking about these tournaments and they're, you know, worried about broadcasting their amateur fortnight local tournament for, you know, the under 20s and they're only getting two concurrent viewers. How do they grow that? It's more so saying, okay, well, who are you marketing to here? You're actually marketing to the people that are playing your games, which is which is an absolute perfect field for the endemic sponsors to start sponsoring because me, as Thermaltake, I ran into this a lot in the past. A lot of the professional tournaments or the tournaments that are trying to get the top-level players, they would ask me for sponsorship and to give out prizes, etc. But why does a player from... SK Gaming want to win a Thermaltake mousepad as a prize. They've already got a brand likely that's sponsoring them that they're contractually obliged that they have to use anyway. So there's no point. So then at that stage, you're marketing to their fans and you're marketing to the people watching them. But if you're playing with amateur tournament, amateur team A versus amateur team B, there's no point marketing to the Twitch stream because no one's watching it. So you're spending all this money and time making overlays, buying a good camera, a good quality computer, making sure your internet works, delaying the tournament because the internet's not working as happens all the time and that kind of stuff. You may as well cut it completely, take that $5,000 investment, cut it in half even, and then spend $2,500 on Facebook ads and try to get some more people through the door and get some more people coming into your tournament. So we've got time for one more question before we wrap up, if there's anybody else that, that wanted to ask a question. Is this going to be an accounting question? <laughs> <laughs> I can't account for what his question will be. So Chris from Paradox Gaming and Rise Family Accounting. Um, the question I have is how do we encourage more professionalism in the industry? So obviously you were talking about how organisations, for instance, don't have player contracts in place or they don't have the, the appropriate structures in place and how do we help build that in the industry to help these organisations also be able to approach sponsors, for instance, in a way where they're actually seen as a professional organisation rather than just a group as such or a small team? Uh, yeah, great question. In fact, um, I'm going to steal a little bit of IP from one of our friends in the in the industry, um, Matt Jessup, who works at DWF, um, without pitching his services, but say that um, if you were if you were a player that was serious about being professional, you would first get your act together in all those respects. So you would have your uh, your contracts drafted, your um, your IP protected, um, you you may, and he does talk a bit about this, I, you know, I, I won't try and paraphrase it all, but it's a bit difficult when, you know, you're desperate to, to be successful or get um, a contract and it comes with a set of terms and if you said no, you wouldn't perhaps get the contract. Um, but um, But being prepared by you having already invested in your, you know, um, your terms that you're presenting, particularly as you're presuming you're getting better and that you're getting more interest, um, you've turned up with um, all of the collateral that in many cases demonstrates that you're not about ready to be taken the piss of to, out of, to be honest. So I think that um, if you're a player that's about to commercialise, you need a good, what is the old saying, you need a good lawyer, a good doctor and a... <laughs> And a good accountant, right? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, great accountant. But no, you do, you do, you know, because you've got to treat commercialising yourself as a professional endeavour and there are there are a range of people who actually specialise more around um, uh, either sports, players, teams, etc., or even more recently into esports so they really understand the landscape so they, you know, you're not talking to a general sports lawyer, you're talking to a... Um, uh, somebody who's quite au fait with the dimensions of esports. Um, how do we encourage them? Well, we've got to, as I said earlier about collaborating, we've got to make people aware of people that, um, if they've listened to us and feel like they that we were pretty authentic, then we need to authentically recommend other people we know who do a good job in this space, so that um, so they don't end up with the wrong partner or nothing at all. That would be my kind of two bits of advice. Definitely spend when spend on that on that um, contractual side in advance of turning up to brands and prevent a professional commercial proposal um, and term sheet. And then secondly, um, you know, have a good set of uh, as Chris, I'm sure, will attest to when he set up big esports. Is make sure you've got a good lawyer and accountant, etc., so that you you go about it professionally. You know, very simple answer, probably really to the question. But I think that's key. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, fr from a sponsorship standpoint regarding teams, I think um, it, it is, you know, leaning on experts and collaborating with experts. And, you know, Matt and I have, have mentioned here that we've worked with Chris and, and, you know, other people that are experts within the industry for recommendations around esports strategies. So, you know, there are agencies that do exist now. And, I mean, there's not a ton of them that specialize in esports. But, I mean, in my recent experience working with Gemba, for example, um, they've created a methodology that looks specifically at sponsorship models around, um, you know, the sporting and entertainment vertical and, and can definitely provide advice on um, how to best commercialize that based on your assets. So it, it is something that whenever you're moving into an area of, of business that you are not entirely sure about, that it does make perfect sense to yeah use your networks and, and seek advice from people that actually experts within that field to to kind of point you in the right direction and i think that going in with the attitude of um i kind of know the direction i want to head but i'm not entirely sure of the best approach here leaning on on someone that actually knows what they're talking about and has you know a, a proven track record for for success is definitely the right approach some of what i find is is i think it's a bit of a chicken and an egg situation yeah. is the fact that esports can't grow bigger until it's more professional but people can't afford to become more professional because they're struggling to make ends meet or to push for that sponsorship to just be able to fly their team or to pay their salaries or to run their company or to pay for their lawyers or accountants so some ways that that has been combated in a very good way is by legal legends and the opl for example so they said okay as of next year, this was in 2016, I believe it was, as of next year, we're professionalizing the OPL. If you're involved in this, these are the minimum standards you have to hit. So if you want to gain the latest OPL spot that was opened up by Tectonic being knocked down back to the OCS, which was picked up by Sean Callan from SportsGeek, uh, who they just announced their new team name today. Um, basically what they say to them is, okay, if you're coming into this, you need to be able to provide a minimum standard of housing, a minimum standard of contracts, um, a minimum term of employment. You also need to be able to prove to us that you have a certain amount of money or capital available to you to be able to complete all of these things. But what they do is it's not a completely one-sided thing. What they did as a developer was they provided the back-end funding to a lot of these teams as well. That said, okay, from year one, we know that we can't just force everybody to say, hey, just pull half a million bucks 
out of thin air and suddenly become a professional team where you've never done that before and you're running on an operating cost of, you know, between $0 and $30,000, which a lot of the teams were at that stage. They said, okay, once you've paid for the house that we're mandating that these people have to live in or for this rent, you can provide us with an invoice and we'll back-end fund 25%, 50%, etc. I'm not sure of the exact amounts for there. So that means that they forced the OPL to professionalise, which means now there are so many brands that are gravitating towards that. It's obvious that the OPL has less viewership than other games in Australia, like Rocket League, Gfinity, um, a lot of the CSGO things, which have zero developer support. However, it's so friendly for brands to come in, which is exactly what Scott and Matt have been talking about during the general podcast and the Q&A. There's so much more safety there because there's no support from Valve, really, for Counter-Strike besides some back-end funding for the majors, which we don't have any of, of which in Australia. And they're also not contactable. So that means that Riot can say, okay, we can guarantee to you that if a player says something racist, sexist, does something stupid on stream, they can never play this game ever again because we own the game as well as we're running the tournament and it's all internal. So that's where some of the owners can then come from these first moving brands that are coming into that space to say, yes, we will sponsor you, but by us sponsoring you, you need to adhere to these minimum standards. So this has happened in the past in some very short form ways where uh, you have to prove that all of that money is going to the prize pool and not going off to some random person's pocket, which obviously isn't realistic in these days because companies have to make a profit margin off these things. You can't just give away all the money you take in. But there are other endemic companies, some of which I'm working with at the moment, that even stipulate that if you're working on an influencer campaign, which I am at the moment, you need to prove to them that you've actually paid the influencer out of the money that they're providing to you and you need to provide them with an invoice that has the breakdown of what your management fee is and what the influencer fee is compared to the deliverables that they're actioning on. So I needed to actually send off to them and say, okay, here's my 25% management fee for this. And then here's the breakdown of what the influencer will be getting and when they'll be paid. And I'll need to provide proof before all of the funds are unlocked for me to be able to actually receive that money. So that means that the onus is now on me to make it happen, but they've actually mandated that. So that's some some different ways that yeah, that the companies can take control and and go into that. Because as a, you know, often with these partnerships, and this is what we're talking about off microphone before, is that at the moment they had to be very hands-on. Usually if you're, you know, sponsoring, imagine if you're a company that's becoming the major sponsor of the AFL in your Toyota, it's not standard that you would have to become the major sponsor and then you would have to make sure they're using the right logos, you'd have to set up your booths yourself and trestle tables at every single AFL event, you'd need to get on them and say, hey, did you make your three tweets this week that you were supposed to make, you know, where are your highlights, having weekly meetings or reports that are late, however, that's what happens in esports quite a lot, you need to be quite hands on. Um, and then once again, it's part of the growing pains of the industry. Most of the people are, you know, fighting very hard to make the event actually happen and to make their team actually function that a lot of the time these sponsored deliverables fall by the wayside. So that's part of my advice for the teams as well is focus on the relationship and what you've done for your sponsors. And if nothing else, just set up a tracking document in Google that everybody can see that has dates next to everything and a tick when you get everything done. And it's the same for any employee looking at their KPIs for the year. There's nothing uh, you can forget about when it's all written there, really obvious for every for every employee to see. And you can check it every single week and go, oh, okay, we've made no tweets this week. It's Friday, it's it's 11.59 p.m. We better at least retweet something from the sponsor and become engaged and become part of that relationship. Would you guys agree with that? Very good advice, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I mean, we, alongside broadcasting, we've also, um, in most of our sports, although not yet in esports because I'm, we're still learning, um, but in most of our sports, we also do personal sponsorships. 
everything from what you would consider a tier one athlete, which runs at hundreds of thousands of dollars through to um, somebody who's never been sponsored before um, in a grassroots sports, grassroots sporting category. Um, and, you know, what I will say is you, when you're paying the money, they've got the infrastructure behind them to make sure they deliver on every sponsorship commitment. Um, and understandably, right, because the, the, between you and the other sponsors, there's enough money to hire a permanent social media person, a manager, uh, somebody who's scheduling all your flights, all the, all the obligations you have. But um, the result of that, though, is the sponsors are very satisfied. So that's why, not only because they're tier one athletes, but also because they can have the finances to operate execution of sponsorship. So perhaps, uh, and then, you know, to be honest with you, in some of our smaller sponsorships with, with you know, emerging athletes in tier two or tier three sports, they struggle to even remember to do the things that, um, unless our team has to chase them, which can be tiring and, and, it's, and it's a bunch of effort. Um, so I would, my, I guess I would say, if you, particularly to an individual, a team normally has some infrastructure, albeit the, the players d divvy up the jobs, right? Um, but I would be really disciplined because it's a business, whether it's the team or an individual, of saying I could only have I only have so much capacity outside of playing the game or doing my stream or or participating in the team, and um, I'm going to make sure that if, say, for example, that capacity is two or three sponsors, but I'm just going to make sure those two or three sponsors, I um, the deliverables I put in there, I'm absolutely confident I can deliver and I do that re regularly and reliably. You do that, you'll very quickly double your, not just double your sponsorship revenue from your existing sponsors, you'll have 10 others come into you year after year. You, you know, basically it's the old, you know, you deliver, everyone wants you again, other people want you as a sponsor. But the tragedy often is, you know, we're, we're after $10,000 to be able to do all this stuff this year, however we can get that. But that's actually a big mistake because you're better off getting four, then maybe six, then maybe seven, but those three brands that you brought on um, in those three categories, you over-delivered to them and they were so excited that you build up a profile that um, was constantly growing. Um, and it's hard because you've got a job to do. I, I don't envy the job of an athlete, like to have to be good at something and do all this other sponsorship stuff. But that's the commercial reality. So the old overcommit and fail is not appropriate. Um, and when you can, when you can afford it, then get some support. And I'm sure there's a lot of, um, Chris, you could probably comment, but there's a lot of management um, services that an athlete can then tap into that can help them to execute those obligations or whether it's drawing up the contract in the first place or advising them, don't say you're going to do seven tweets a day because you're never going to do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't want to sign that. You want to tell them that that's actually a bad idea for their brand. It'll be quite annoying, you know? <laughs> so um, yes. uh, I think you probably got some comments to pick up from that. But, um, you know, I'm not talking about esports at all in this context. I'm talking about going from, you know, something like gymnastics all the way up to supercars. And it is a problem for these um, the smaller smaller folks. So it's a challenge, but it's, it's one that you'd rather deliver well every time, I think. Yeah, and I guess closing closing comments because we're running out of time. But what, what I would, 
what I would say on that is the theme I'm getting is is get less sponsors and build the relationship and you end up making more money in the long run. And a lot of the issue that comes with esports teams that I have experienced personally as a sponsor and have seen with other teams doing is that everybody's chasing the new contract and the new sponsor to get. And then you end up with an esports team that has 11 sponsors on its jersey, kind of akin to V8 Supercars. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, V8 Supercars, there's 30 logos on a car and I have no idea of knowing who the sponsor is except for the name brand sponsor because it might be the Red Bull car, it might be the Optus car or something like that and this happens with esports too and what i say to these teams when they're saying you know when i was a sponsor of a team and they're saying hey chris we're thinking about picking up another sponsor in this different category saying look you've only got one twitter account and you've already got to make three tweets a week for me so if you've got 10 brands you're making 30 tweets a week and this goes back to exactly what matt was saying before it looks spammy it doesn't look very nice but if you build that very strong relationship with this instead of this one brand saying okay i'm sponsoring this team for you know a couple thousand dollars uh but i want to spend ten thousand dollars in esports so then all of a sudden they're sponsoring your team they're sponsoring another team they're sponsoring two leagues and they're sponsoring an influencer whereas maybe what your goal could be is to take all of those responsibilities on and end up taking that whole ten thousand dollars for yourself by building a good relationship and that means then as a company obviously these dollar feel these dollar values aren't real it's just to just to illustrate the point but if you can then fulfill that across three major sponsors and gain all of your revenue from three major sponsors that you've kept very happy that have long-term relationships with while it could be a bit risky because your main profit lines are coming from only three areas rather than 10 or 15 those companies are going to be much more happy with you and they'll be signed in the long run and a little bit of look at some of these esports teams you'll realize especially the ones that start gaining all of these sponsors they've got their bottom four sponsors just churn and rotate non-stop so the amount of time that it takes for you to educate to build that relationship with that sponsor pay a lawyer to to do the contract get added into their system start the deliverables and then after 12 months they're gone and do it again you're spending a lot of that admin work and it goes back to even very similar to the advice that people give about spending extra money to retain employees versus just churning through employees it actually costs a company a lot of money to onboard a sponsor correctly as it does cost you a lot of money to onboard an employee correctly because you don't know how the employee works or you don't know how the sponsorship relation works for the first three or four months often you're just kind of feeling it out you making some baseless boring tweets with nothing to back it up but then after four months you've got some proper content if your team's gone to three or four events you're recycling that you're able to make some video content you're able to show this sponsor on the stage when you've won this tournament and you can start recycling and then reusing that content and the kind of the cycle goes around and around so that'd be some of the uh some of the advice i'd give yeah in that regards so thank you for everybody who came here and joined us live today yeah thanks for coming Um, out guys cheers Thanks for everybody who's uh, listened online to this podcast as well. Like I said, this podcast will be out in about a week from the recording date. This has been the Big Esports Podcast. Uh, If you've got any suggestions for anybody else you think that uh, we should have on, feel free to reach out to us on social media. We're just called Big Esports across Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or bigesports.gg is where you can find all of our podcasts. Our sponsors uh, for this podcast in particular, Hoyt Cinemas, and for all of our podcasts within Season 1 and what we're calling Season 2 is PLE Computers, fantastic PC retailer that supports grassroots and mid-level esports across all of Australia and many different streams. So thank you for tuning in and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.